Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is the 30th of June, 2015. It's Tuesday evening. It's about nine and a half minutes after 8 p.m. And if that's all true where you're at, meaning uh, 8 p.m. Pacific time means, uh, what, 9, 10, 11 o'clock Eastern then we're live, and that means you can participate in the show. You can call in 800-932-1980. 800-932-1980. You can also go to the chat room, which is located at theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. You'll see the chat link, click it, go on in there, participate away. You can also send me an instant message 
through Yahoo Instant Messenger. The screen name is A-V-R-N Talk. Okay, well, there you have it. And uh, let's see here. Uh, oh, gosh, uh got some stuff over here. I was just on the... Uh, the show with uh, Al on American Independence Hour. And, you know, every time I look up stuff when I'm on with Al, and I've got the Oregon Constitution here in front of me. And I'll tell you, you know, folks, really, a lot of this stuff, you know, if you're going to do it, there's no easy way to explain it, but I think a lot of stuff that Al is on to is true about the different jurisdictions because really either we we can accept one of two things about the way the government is operating, okay? Either they are operating completely in an obvious criminal manner, disregarding the law, and doing what they want, which would make them outlaws. And, you know, it seems unlikely that they're doing that. It seems more likely that they have created a situation where, oh no, what we're doing is actually legal. And now, you know, it's also, you got to understand the difference between lawful and legal. They're not the same. You know, just like, hey... That worthless little piece of paper in your pocket there is legal tender. But it is not lawful money. Okay, that's that's the easiest example I can give anybody about the difference between lawful and legal. A Federal Reserve note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. But it is not lawful money. Now, if you have an old Federal Reserve note, you know, it's still a Federal Reserve note, but it's older, I guess, from the 60s or something. And I had a $20 bill. I don't know where it is now, but I had one actual uh, older one with the uh, little, you know, statement on it that starts out. That this is legal tender for all debts, private, you know, public and private. Well, and that's where it stops now. But it used to keep going and say, and redeemable for lawful money. Well, it's the same Federal Reserve note as it was when that was on. They just took that off. Redeemable for lawful money? Really? So if an item... Whatever it is, whether you call it a Federal Reserve note or it's something else, whatever it is, if it is redeemable for something, it is not that something, okay? So if this piece of paper is redeemable for lawful money, then this piece of paper cannot be lawful money. You know, and if you want to go look up lawful money, you'll see what lawful money is. You know, they had the Coinage Act, and that's what loyal uh, lawful money is. Then you go to the, you know, the Constitution, and it says, hey, no state shall make anything but gold and silver tender and payment for any debt. And you go, wait a minute now, you know, hey, 
when they want property tax or they got a, um, you know, give you a traffic ticket or whatever, they want money from you somehow, they don't want gold and silver. They want Federal Reserve notes. Well, wait a minute. How can that be? I mean, if you are dealing with a state of the union, one of the several states of the United States of America, why they're in blatant, you know, violation of a constitutional requirement. How can that be? How can that be? Well, how it could be is they could be doing that, but you got to figure after all these years, not one judge, not nobody, nobody, nowhere, not one state has ever been able to get that ruled on, huh? That, oh, oh, gee, you're breaking the law. You're violating the Constitution. You're all going to jail. It's either that or there's something else going on, and I tend to believe there's something else going on. Some way they can sidestep it. And the only way I can think of it, now that doesn't mean that's the only way, but the only way I can think of is to create another entity. Kind of like what they've done with marriage. Okay? They've created another marriage. It's spelled the same way as a biblical marriage. It looks exactly the same, sounds exactly the same. They even use it in the same context. But obviously, it isn't the same. Because if it was the same, the Supreme Court just violated the First Amendment. Kind of blatantly, I'd say. But are they talking about a biblical marriage? I don't think so, because I don't think they've ever had jurisdiction over a biblical marriage. But they still call it marriage. What they call a marriage is the kind you go down and get a license. You get permission from the state to engage in marriage. But that's not a biblical marriage. Because if it was, listen, a license, and this is not me making things up, this is the truth. A license is permission to do what would otherwise be illegal. Now, I don't think anybody out there would argue that, well, being married before the United States came up with a license was illegal. A biblical marriage is illegal. I don't think anybody's going to make that argument. They've created another kind of marriage, yet they call it the same, they use the word in the same context, and everybody believes that's just the way it is. Even your misguided 501c3 government churches those pastors will not marry you unless you come walking in there with a state license. Okay, so now we go back to 
Hey, no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment for any debt. Well, but they're doing it. Yeah, any state. Well, any state, when the Constitution was written, meant any state of the Union of the United States of America. Is that what they're doing now? Is that who you're dealing with when you go pay a traffic ticket or when you pay your property tax? Is that who you're dealing with? Are you dealing with a state of the union of the United States of America? Or are you dealing with some sort of corporation or some sort of federal district government? Are you dealing with, what are you dealing with? It has to be something other than a State of the Union. Because see, a State of the Union can make nothing, no thing, but gold and silver coin. A tender in payment. You see, words. Just because they call it marriage doesn't mean maybe the same kind of marriage you think of. Just because they call it a state doesn't necessarily mean it's the same state you might think of. When they say the United States, it might not be the same United States that you've got in your mind. you got to ask them, who are you? Well, I'm such and such of the United States. Really? Okay. And which United States would that be? And in that particular question, they can't say, well, what do you mean? You're just crazy. No, the Supreme Court has ruled that there's at least three distinct definitions of the United States. And there might be more. So which one do you mean? Do you mean the United States of America, the Perpetual Union, styled in the Articles of Confederation, perfected, supposedly, in the Constitution? Hmm, is that what you mean? I don't think you're going to get much of an answer, because they don't want to go there. Because if they say yes, they got trouble. If they say no, they got trouble. It's kind of that, like that song, should I stay or should I go? You know, if I go, there will be trouble. If I stay, it will be double. It's the kind of same thing. You know, no matter what they say, <laughs> it's not going to work out. That's why asking questions is so important, folks. Do you understand? And nobody out there better say yes. Okay? Don't ever say yes when somebody asks you that. No, I don't. Can you explain it to me? And first off, do you understand? I think that's a great response. Uh, do you understand? Uh, no. Do you understand enough to explain it to me? Ooh. Hmm. Anyway, here's Obama. Now, you know, we talk about these court rulings. The court ruled this. The court ruled that. Oh, my gosh. Now we got to do this. we got to do that. What if we all just say, screw you, we're not doing it anyway? You can say what you want, you nine pieces of garbage. You know, go sit down. We're not paying attention to you. 
What happens if we do that? And, and why not? Why don't we look to an example of that? Why don't we look to our fearless leader and emulate his actions, huh? Why don't we do that and just say, well, you know, President Obama tells the courts to just screw off all the time, so I'm going to just do what he does. Yeah, because the Obama administration still has not fully rescinded the 2003-year amnesties. Yeah, the 2000 three-year amnesties it wrongly issued four months ago in violation of a court order. Government lawyers recently admitted in court, spurring a stern response from the judge who said the matter must be cleared up by the end of July or else. It's the latest, I'd like to know what or else is, maybe they'll tell us here. It's the latest black eye for President Obama's amnesty policy and the immigration agency charged with carrying out. The agency bungled the rollout, issuing three-year amnesties, even while assuring the judge it had stopped all action hours after a February 16th injunction. U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, the agency responsible for overseeing the amnesty, said it's trying to round up all the permits, sending out two year amnesties and pleading with the illegal immigrants to return the three-year cards. Pleading? Pleading? Why aren't you out there arresting them? Don't you have their address or are you just handing these things out like candy on the street corner? But they have, they're having trouble getting some of the lucky recipients to send them back. Oh, USCIS is carefully tracking the returns of the three-year EAD cards and many have been returned within weeks. The agency said in a statement to the Washington Times, USCIS continues to take steps to collect the remaining three-year EAD cards. The agency didn't answer specific questions about how many remain outstanding, nor about what methods will be used to claw back the ones that folks refuse to return. The three-year deportation amnesty was part of Mr. Obama's November 2014 announcement when he proposed granting a three-year tentative deportation amnesty to millions of illegal aliens. It was to be a massive expansion in both eligibility and duration of his 2012 amnesty, which granted two-year amnesty to so-called dreamers. Judge Andrew S. Hannon blocked the expansion in February, issuing an injunction that remains in place, even as the administration appeals it to a higher court. But Judge Hannon was shocked to learn that the USCIS issued the 2,000 three-year amnesties even after he'd issued his injunctions. I expect you to resolve the 2,000. I'm shocked that you haven't, Judge Hannon told the Justice Department, the, the lynch mob, at a hearing last week, according to San Antonio Express News. If they're not resolved by July 31st, I'm going to have to figure out what action to take. Why didn't he just say, you're all going to jail? And I'll, you know what? I'll issue an arrest warrant for the president while I'm at it. Why not? Let Obama thumb his nose at that. That'd be a good uh, example for everybody in America to just tell judges, pound sand, pally. You go ahead and issue what you want. You know what I'll do? I'll do just like the president. I'll surround myself with a bunch of guys with guns, and you can come and try to get me. What do you say? Huh? Just like our criminal president's doing.
Homeland Security says it changed the duration of the work permits from three years to two years in its computer systems, but getting the cards returned from the illegal aliens themselves is a little tougher. Yeah, seeing as how you have no idea where they are. Yeah, the Office of Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, who is leading the lawsuit challenging the amnesty and who won the February injunction against the policy, didn't respond to a request for comment on the outstanding permits. Josh Blackman, an assistant professor at the South Texas College of Law, who has filed briefs in the case opposing the Obama administration's claims, said he believes the administration is trying to comply in good faith with Judge Haven's order. Yeah, baloney. You know what? The Obama administration said, screw that little peon judge, and we're just going to go out and do what we want anyway. That's what Obama told his boys to do, and that's what they're doing. The entire nature of this case was that agents were given a free reign to approve as many applications as possible. DHS can't keep track of its own agents and who's being approved for deferrals and work authorization. You know, uh, Mr. Obama announced the policy in order to circumvent Congress, which is moving the other direction away from legalization and toward a crackdown on most illegal aliens. Well, you know, uh, that sounds good, doesn't it? Okay? That sounds good. Oh, boy, our Congress, that worked for us, right? Baloney. You know what? You want to crack down? You want to crack down? You want to stop the illegal aliens? You know, you don't go after the illegal aliens. Okay, these are for the most part people on the the lower end of the economy. These are people struggling already. All right? They don't need to be arrested and dragged around and put in cages and bust anywhere or anything. They made their way up here on their own. They can make their way home on their own. You don't go after the illegal aliens. You go after the reason they're coming here. All right? They're not coming here for the weather, folks. They're coming here for the stuff they get. They get jobs. They get schooling. They get medical. They get food stamps. They get free housing. They get money. Okay? Oh, and free legal. Okay, this is why they're coming here. So if you want them to leave, you don't have to go kicking in doors and dragging people down the street and taking them for rides in black vans. You just tell everybody who's got a business that, oh, hey, guess what? You know what? If we catch you hiring any illegal aliens, because you know what? When you hire somebody, it's on you to make sure they have permission to work in the United States, meaning they were either born here, they've been naturalized, or they at least have a work permit. If you don't do that, and we catch an illegal alien working for you, we're going to fine you $500 the first time. The second time we catch you, we're going to fine you a million dollars. We're going to seize all your property, both corporate and private, and we're going to put you in jail for a year. Yeah. So, that's what you do with employers. That's pretty simple, isn't it? 
And yeah, you're going to have to have somebody enforce it, but you know what? You could do it the same way, oh, that the FCC enforces uh, radio things. Just go on complaint-based. Hey, I walk into a McDonald's, I see some people that can't speak English, guess what? I'm going to get on my little cell phone, and I'm going to call up uh, the government and say, Hey, man, you know, you got to get down here. Uh, I think there's some illegal aliens in this business here. And I don't expect them to come down there and arrest all the aliens. You just tell them, look, you're fired, because you know what? This business is going out of business here. Get out. Oh, I don't care where you go. Just get out. And what else? Oh, uh, I think the rest is really easy, seeing as how it's all government giveaways. Oh, yeah, you know what? If you can't prove you're in this country legally, you don't get to go to school. If you can't prove you're in this country legally, you don't get to go to a doctor. You don't get welfare. You don't get food stamps. You don't get anything. If you can't prove you're here legally. Well, let's see now. Uh, hmm, no jobs, no money, no welfare, no education, no health care. Wow. Uh, gee, what am I doing here? You know, and a lot of the illegal aliens are going to be asking themselves that, like most of them. What am I doing here exactly? There's nothing here for me. I better head on back home. You know, so don't ever buy this whole, oh, they're going to crack down on the aliens. Uh, they're going to do something about the aliens. No, until they, until they start talking about cracking down on business, ain't never going to stop. It's like drugs, man. You can say drugs are as legal, illegal as loud as you like, and there's still going to be people out there taking drugs. You know why? Because people like to take drugs, and you know why people will sell them, even though, ooh, ooh this is risky because there's money involved. Unless you take away the incentive, you're never going to change the behavior. You know, this is the mind control government we're talking about here, folks. So they're well aware of this concept. It's not that they don't get it. It's that they won't do it. And they want to keep feeding you crap, saying, oh, we're going to crack down, crack down. Yeah, we're going to try dragging these Mexicans out of here. <laughs> Like that's going to do anything. Oh, boy, we can have another... Hey, I know. Why don't we have a war on illegal immigration? Because that's worked out so good for us on everything else. Yeah, we had a war on drugs. How's that going? We had a war on poverty. How's that working out? We had a war on illiteracy. Oh, please, give me a break. You know... This country, with all the wars it declares, we haven't won a war since I don't know when. Anyway, we're going to take a break. We'll be back in a bit. Mother, daddy, love me reckless. My daddy, daddy, love me wild, wild, wild. Mother, daddy, love me reckless. 
call 316-619-4886. Food prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Close. 
right, welcome back. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephanie, and you're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It's June 30th, 2015. It's Tuesday, and it's about almost 8.44 out here on the Pacific Time Coast. If that's true where you're at, we are, in fact, live, which means you can participate. 800-932-1980. That's the call-in number, and it is toll-free. 800-932-1980. Or you can go to the chat room which is located at theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. You'll see the chat link. Click it. Go on in. You can uh, participate with uh, the rest of the chatters in there. And, uh, okay, uh, I am, that means Instant Messenger, Yahoo Instant Messenger, AVRN Talk is the screen name you're looking for. Okay, well, you know what? These guys in the chat room, man, I, I just, they they amaze me sometimes at the music, at the bands they know. <laughs> I'm just, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm appalled, really, but that's the game. And uh, the first band was a song that's been done and redone by quite a few bands. Uh, very well done, by the way, I think. But that is... Uh, either the original or one of the original, by Blind Willie McTell. Okay, obviously a blues man. And the room did not get that one. However, they did get the second one. And the name of the song was Pepper. And it was by Butthole Surfers. Huh? (laughs) They got that one. Yes, they did. So, uh, there we are. We have uh, a tie. Oh man, you know, I I'm 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 appalled that they knew that, but hey, whatever. I guess I should be appalled I played it then too, but never mind. We'll get back to the news. Oh, let's see here. Oh gosh. This is, you know, I looked through some of this stuff and I don't even want to mention it, but I'm going to. All right, so we've gone from burning the um, you know, the Confederate flag, which isn't really the Confederate flag. And I kind of brought that up during the uh, American Independence Hour. And and I believe there's still some links in there. There's one really good link that it, I forget which uh, USA something flags or something. It, it It's in the uh, chat room. Look for it in there. And you can see the uh, actual pictures of the Confederacy's national flag. And it's not the stars and bars. That's a battle flag, okay? That is a military flag. Now, it was instituted into their national flag, but, you know, they were uh, already on the end of uh, losing by the time that happened. Uh, the Confederacy ended up having three flags. But now, now, a group calling for the immediate Disarmament of the New York Police Department plans to burn American flags in a Brooklyn park on Wednesday, uh, just days before the 4th of July. Isn't that nice? You know, and I don't really care. You know, there's been issues about this before. And you know what? If you want to go to the store and buy a flag, I don't care what kind of flag, any kind of flag. You want to go buy a flag yourself and go burn it? Go ahead. 
I do view that as legitimate protest. I used to participate in UN flag burning. Okay, we used to take UN flags that we bought and we brought a big barbecue pit to the uh, front of the courthouse in Medford, Oregon. And, um, well, I guess the best turnout we had was about 350 people. And the news media was there. The TV was there. You know, it was kind of cool. And Medford's not that big of a town. And we burn UN flags. Now, you know, hey, people that love the UN are probably very offended by that. Well, too bad. We bought those flags and we burned those flags. So, you know what? If you want to go buy a flag, go ahead and burn it if you want. But, you know, hey, why not save yourself some effort and just pull out that money in your pocket and burn all of that? Why don't you do that instead? I mean, if you're going to go buy a flag and then just burn it anyway, why don't you just burn all those Federal Reserve notes? I mean, there's, they're a bigger representation of this government than that flag ever has been. Nobody in this country, well, okay. Don't let me say nobody again, but fewer people in this country could care less or couldn't care less about the flag, but they sure do care about their money. So you want to burn something that represents the way this government acts? Hey, just pull out those Federal Reserve notes and throw them on the barbecue, man. Don't waste your time going to Walmart. Hey, what are you doing that for? You don't want to, you don't want to, you know promote and help the corporate beast, do you? You know, so it doesn't bother me personally if somebody burns an American flag that they went and bought themselves. Now, you try to take anything from me and burn it, I may resist that. See, that's the difference. Hey, you want to burn your own stuff down? Go ahead. But anyway, organizers... uh, Oh, yeah, Disarm NYPD announced the Burn the American Flag event on Facebook, inviting individuals to join the organization at Fort Greene Park to set fire to the symbol of oppression. (laughs) Oh, man. Organizers said accused Charleston shooter Dylan Roof wasn't an isolated actor, but a product of a consistent pattern of state-sponsored terrorism and radicalized dehumanization in America. You know, I really can't argue with that. I mean, he was an isolated actor, though. I mean, you can't, you know, you can't take that away. I mean, is this group trying to say, oh... Nobody has personal responsibility for their own actions. If somebody somewhere in your life uh, maybe gave you some bad advice, maybe told you something that was wrong, maybe showed you a a picture of a car wreck or something, I don't know, you know, traumatized you somehow, now you're no longer responsible for your own actions, well, baloney. He was an isolated actor. An actor is exactly what he was but a product of a consistent pattern of state-sponsored terrorism and radicalized dehumanization in America. Well, I can't argue with that. The event originally was aimed at uh, burning the Confederate flag, but later changed to focus on the Stars and Stripes. 
Quote, there will be no peace until we tear down this system of oppression, the group wrote on Facebook. It isn't enough to take down the flag. We must put an end to white supremacy once and for all. Well, okay. Uh, let's say you do. Okay, so you're going to take down white supremacy. All right. So, uh, who's going to be the new supreme race? Yeah, who's going to be the new supreme race? And don't give me this equality thing, because uh, that has never happened, and it will never happen, because you know why? We're not equal. That's why we are not equal. Do you see this whole thing about reading This is a perfect example of what's wrong with the way they are teaching children to read today. You know, skip over the words you don't know and just kind of figure it out by the context. And yeah, you'll do fine. Sure, you will. Not. You know, I I mean, honestly. People don't comprehend what they read. They just read the words and they don't comprehend what they read. Who's going to be the new supreme race? Because there is no equality. People point to the uh, Constitution and they count to the uh, Declaration of Independence. And they say, well, see, all men are created equal. Well, that's more accurately. Here's what it means. And I'm not just making this up. This is from Article 1, Section 1 of the Oregon Constitution. We declare that all men, when they form a social compact, are equal in right. That all power is inherent in the people and all free governments are founded on their authority and instituted for their peace, safety, and happiness. And they have at all times a right to alter, reform, or abolish the government in such manner as they may think proper. Did you get the part where it says, when they form a social compact, are equal in right? That's what it means. Not equal, not equal opportunity, not equal abilities, but equal in right. You have the same rights I have. I have the same rights you have. That doesn't make us equal. And this is the misunderstanding that too many people in this country have about equality. They think that means that I should have everything you have. I should be able to do everything you can do. And if I can't, somehow, because you can do it, and I can't, you're holding me back. It's just crap. And it isn't even what the Founding Fathers meant. It's not what the law is about. The law addresses rights, not your abilities. But... 
Does the public school system teach children this? No. They tell them, skip on over it. You know what equal means, don't you? Yeah, sure you do. What they've done is they have supplanted what the authors of the Constitution and the, uh, you know, the Bill of Rights and the uh, Declaration of Independence and even the Oregon Constitution, they have supplanted that with this communist manifesto-type ideal where everybody is equal. We all have equality, but we don't. And the government's job is not to sit there and make sure I got everything you got. The government's job is to make sure all our rights are protected equally. And they are failing miserably at that. They've got, you know, they've got how many protected classes now? How is that equal and right? How is that equal and right? Huh? How are my rights being equally protected when there are protected classes that I'm not included in? And even if I was included in them, what about the people that aren't? How is that equal right? Hmm? The government has taken what they're supposed to be doing and exchanged it for what the Communist Manifesto says they're supposed to be doing. And why? Because most of the dimwits that went to public school are running around thinking, oh, uh, equal means we should all have the same stuff that everybody else has. I want a car like that. I can barely talk. I can't even pull my pants up. But I want, I want a car like that. And you know what the sad thing is? Through the debt fiat currency system, those dimwits are able to get that car. Yeah, if they can scribble their name on a piece of paper, they'll get a loan for that car. Because you see, they don't care if you can ever pay it back. Because there's nothing to pay back. You didn't borrow anything. There's nothing to pay back. Your signature just created commercial paper. You're the one floating the boat. You're the one creating the money. Oh, they left that part out, huh? They didn't tell you that, huh? Yeah, well, no, they wouldn't, would they? But that's the reality of it. We have such a ignorant population in America... It, it really, and, that, and this is one of the reasons why, you know, there, there isn't really much hope, you know, of take America back and all this other good stuff you hear by, uh, you know, the bullhorn people. It, it's like, you know, look, man, yeah, really? Take America back and do what with it? I mean, yeah, we could start all over. And uh, you know what? For... 20, 30 years, we'd have a tough time. But then we'd do a lot better after that because, you know what, this didn't happen in one one night. People wonder, well, gosh, how did things go, go so bad so fast, you know? I mean, gosh, just 10 years ago, you know, homos getting married would be unheard of. It would be, no way, forget about it. Nobody would accept that. What the heck's happened? How did this go so fast? I mean, we wouldn't even let Hillary Clinton give us health care. What happened? How did Obama get this through so fast? How did everything happen so fast? Well, it didn't happen that fast. This is like the uh, overnight sensation that's been working at it for 20 years. They've been working at this a real long time, folks. And now, 
all the little children who have been taught all the little communist ideals at public school are starting to graduate. And they're starting to get out into the workforce. Yeah, welcome to Walmart. You want fries with that? It doesn't matter. See, they're out there. They're voting, and they're making a difference. And they're passing on what they learned in school. That's how it all got where it's at so fast. Anyway, got to go. I'll see you tomorrow. As always, thanks for listening. heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific.
between the tiroteos comenzaron a las 12 de la noche. The shooting began at midnight, and everyone ran toward their homes. People started hollering. Children began crying. It was a complex operation. 27 targets were hit simultaneously. I heard my family, some of my family get shot, and I don't know nothing else that's happened. I just keep going because I was fighting to die. I was fighting to die. The goal was not to level the place, but to minimize damage to property, and most important of all, to minimize casualties, uh, and that was accomplished. My daughter did not belong to any group. She had nothing to do with Noriega. She was innocent. She had nothing to do with all of this, and they killed her. If I had to do it again, I would do it again because the cost was high. It was men, women, civilians, and military that gave their lives, not for us. They gave their lives for democracy, for liberty, for freedom. And I don't mind paying any price under the sun to be free. On December 19, 1989, while Panamanians were getting ready for the Christmas holidays, the United States was secretly mobilizing 26,000 troops for a midnight attack. approaching. They were close. The lights went out and the helicopters began to shoot. People were running left and right without direction, without knowing where they were going. It wasn't just machine gun fire. They were bombs. The noise was frightening. We could hear gunfire coming from all directions and a strange noise that we had never heard before. People were frightened, running, wondering what was going on. The sky was completely red and there was a tremor you could feel throughout the city. The invasion was swift, intense and merciless. When it was over, thousands lay dead and wounded, and the country was in shambles. Millions of U.S. tax dollars were swallowed up in three days of brutal violence. The strategy was considered a stunning military and political success. The operation continues. Uh... In many ways, the invasion served as a testing ground for the Persian Gulf War one year later. 
It is also an indication of the kinds of intervention the United States may undertake in the years to come. But still, big questions remain. What exactly happened during the invasion of Panama, and why? This is the CBS Evening News. Dan Rather reporting. Good evening. More than 20,000 U.S. soldiers and Marines launched their attack in the early morning darkness, backed by swarms of helicopters. As the invasion unfolded, Americans stayed glued to their TVs and newspapers for coverage. But how much of the real picture did the media give them? The performance of the mainstream news media in the coverage of Panama has been just about total collaboration with the administration. Not a critical murmur, not a critical perspective, not a second thought. The story that the White House was pushing was getting this so-called narco-terrorist in a net. And that was the, the thrust of all of the coverage. Uh, when are we going to get Noriega? Have they let Noriega get away? By late today, they had taken control of much of the country, but their chief target, General Manuel Noriega, escaped. Manuel Noriega belongs to that special fraternity of international villains, men like Gaddafi, Idi Amin, and the Ayatollah Khomeini, whom Americans just love to hate. The White House announced a $1 million reward for his And today, the Justice Department set up a hotline to take in tips on Noriega's possible whereabouts. That hotline number is... They focused on Noriega to the exclusion of what was happening to the Panamanian people, to the exclusion of the bodies in the street, to the exclusion of the number dead, to the exclusion of what happened to the women and children in that country during this midnight invasion. In some ways, the 1989 U.S. invasion of Panama was no surprise given the history of relations between these two countries. The United States refused to recognize Panama's independence movement throughout the 1800s. But when the U.S. proposal to build a canal across the isthmus was turned down by Colombia, U.S. policy abruptly changed. In 1903, the United States provided military backup, enabling Panama to secede from Colombia. By doing so, the United States secured the rights to take over the canal project that had been abandoned by the French. In a treaty that was negotiated between the French canal investors and the United States, the Americans were granted sovereign control in perpetuity of a 10-mile wide strip of land they called the Canal Zone. Panamanians were not included in the negotiations and no Panamanian signed the treaty. The United States immediately placed the Canal Zone under military control. Teddy Roosevelt was asked by what right he acquired possession of the canal. At least in the honest words of a thief, he said, I took it. Uh, that gives you no right in law, never has. And hopefully, never will. The canal project had a dramatic impact on Panama. The U.S. imported cheap labor from the Caribbean, India, and Asia, changing the racial makeup of the country. Thousands of these workers died, and those who remained lived as part of a new racial underclass. 
they created an apartheid system in Panama, a system that obeys on racial segregation, where black people could not live in the same homes, where black people could not even use the same water fountain. The Jim Crow law that was practiced in the southern part of the United States was implemented in Panama by the United States government. After the canal was completed in 1913, the United States continued to expand its military presence and tighten its grip on Panamanian politics. Violent confrontations between Panamanians and the U.S. military grew in the decades that followed. Tensions peaked in 1964 when students tried to exercise Panama's right to fly its flag in the canal zone. Twenty-one Panamanians were killed and hundreds were wounded in the confrontation. In 1968, Panama's government was overthrown in a military coup. Omar Torrijos, a colonel in the National Guard, emerged as the new leader of Panama. Although he used repressive measures to consolidate his power, he became immensely popular. Torrijos introduced an unexpected period of social reform that benefited Panama's majority population of blacks, Indians, and mestizos. It created what some people call a populist reformist process. Umberto Brown, an administrator at the State University of New York, served as a Panamanian diplomat to the United Nations. He was educated in Panama during the Torrijos period. We're for first time in Panama you had a participation of the non-oligarchical people of the nation. Where people like myself get an opportunity to, to go to university, get a degree where the peasants, where people from the mestizo, they were, where all the people were deprived of an opportunity for once in our life were playing important roles in our nation. In nineteen seventy eight Relations between the United States and Panama reached a high point. Jimmy Carter and Omar Torrijos negotiated treaties that abolished the 1903 treaty, establishing a new relationship between the two countries. The Carter-Torrijos treaties required the United States to vacate its military bases and withdraw its troops by the year 2000. Full control of the canal and the canal zone would be turned over to Panama. Although these new treaties were a source of pride for Panamanians, many conservatives in the United States had vehemently opposed them. The Panama Canal Zone is sovereign United States territory, just as much as Alaska is, as well as the states carved from the Louisiana Purchase. We bought it, we paid for it, and General Torrio should be told we're going to keep it. In November 1980, Ronald Reagan defeated Jimmy Carter in a landslide election victory. Eight months later, on the night of July 31, 1981, Omar Torrijos was killed in a fiery plane crash. The circumstances of the incident are unclear. Authorities said that his plane crashed into the side of a mountain. But witnesses said 
that the plane exploded in flight. Although his death was officially declared an accident, many suspect that he was assassinated. Some think that Manuel Noriega may have been involved, but many are convinced it was the CIA that was responsible. I'm quite convinced that the CIA killed Torrijos, and this I know quite well because I, I work with Torrijos. And Jose Chuchu Martinez was one of Torrijos' closest aides for many years. They killed him precisely at the moment they had to kill him, at the moment that Torrijos was having a big influence over, all, over Central America, uh, especially among the revolutionary movements. They killed Torrijos because Torrijos represented precisely the a political solution of the, of the whole Central American problem. Waiting in the wings for his chance to take power was Colonel Manuel Noriega, the CIA's primary contact in Panama. Noriega was head of Panama's military intelligence and had a long-standing relationship with the United States. He had been on the CIA payroll since the 60s. When George Bush became director of the CIA in 1976, under President Ford, he inherited Noriega as a contact. Despite evidence that Noriega was involved in drug trafficking, Bush kept Noriega on the payroll. In fact, he increased Noriega's salary to more than $100,000 a year and eliminated a requirement that intelligence reports on Panama include information on drug trafficking. Over the last 20 years, since Manuel Noriega was recruited by the Central Intelligence Agency to be an asset, he has obviously provided many, many important pieces of information to U.S. intelligence. Peter Kornblue is senior analyst at the National Security Archive. The archive has assembled hundreds of previously classified government documents revealing the details of Noriega's relationship to U.S. intelligence. They paid him an incredible amount of money, of American taxpayers' money, and obviously decided that his value to them uh, was uh, so important that his drug smuggling and other illegal activity could simply be ignored. I, George Herbert Walker Bush, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States, that I will support and defend... After George Bush became vice president under Ronald Reagan in 1981, he was named head of the administration's anti-drug campaign and once again took responsibility for monitoring Noriega's intelligence activities. Bush, in fact, seems to have been instrumental, even according to the documented evidence the administration itself has made available, in seeing to it that Noriega was well taken care of. And in fact, Admiral Stansfield Turner, the former director of the CIA under Carter, claims that he cut Noriega off, that he removed him from the U.S. payroll. Bush put him back on and, in fact, gave him a raise. And developed an even closer relationship than it existed before. With support from the CIA, Noriega was able to outmaneuver his rivals, and in August of 1983, he became commander of the Panamanian military. As the Reagan administration expanded its covert war against the Sandinista government in Nicaragua, Noriega became increasingly helpful. 
Working with the CIA and with Israeli arms dealers, Noriega helped coordinate an arms supply network to provide weapons to contrabases in northern Costa Rica. It is by now undeniable that the same planes that were carrying arms from Panama into Costa Rica were also carrying drugs. And in fact, the people who were the pilots flying those arms to the Contras and flying drugs on up, eventually reaching the United States, have been indicted and are now serving time. This operation essentially gave Manuel Noriega the assurance that they would turn a blind eye to his continued brokering of cocaine deals in return for using his network to get the arms to the Contras in northern Costa Rica. Noriega's involvement in the drug traffic really increased his importance as a source for the CIA and as someone who was able to conduct dirty tricks in the region for the CIA. So it's no accident that the CIA became the most prominent defenders of Noriega against the drug charges because that's the sort of thing which CIA clients tend to do. Time after time, when we install strongmen in the third world, because we want them to be strong, we want to see them involved with the strongest local economic forces, which time after time are the drug traffic. Despite Noriega's collaboration with many U.S. covert operations, he was becoming increasingly uncooperative with U.S. objectives in Central America. In 1984, he angered the Reagan administration by hosting Latin American leaders at the Contadora Peace Talk. The talks called for an end to U.S. intervention in Central American affairs. Noriega was not the yes man that the United States wanted him to be. He simply didn't like to be pushed around. He certainly didn't like people like John Poindexter uh, or even William Casey coming down to his uh, villa and telling him what he should do or what he shouldn't do. Then in 1986, the Iran-Contra scandal erupted. Noriega's primary contacts in the administration were now under intense scrutiny. Oliver North was fired. Poindexter was forced to resign, and William Casey fell ill with a brain tumor. So all three of Noriega's major protectors were out of government, uh, and that led quickly to, um, to a shift in U.S. policy. Sentiments within Panama were turning against Noriega as well. For three years, Noriega worked with the DEA in a sting operation codenamed Operation Pisces. In 1987, with Noriega's assistance, authorities arrested hundreds of suspects and froze millions of dollars in Panama's banks, severely disrupting the money laundering business. The financial community was outraged and Noriega's opponents mobilized against him. 
Back in Washington, Noriega's opponents lobbied and testified against him, accusing him of murder, corruption, and drug running. The U.S. media quickly turned it into a major story. United States, but relations with Panama are under a new cloud tonight because of news reports. Senator Jesse Helms charged today that the military strongman of Panama, Manuel Noriega, is the number one drug trafficker in the Americas. Helms said depending on how the situation with Noriega... The reports from U.S. intelligence have also led to new investigations on Capitol Hill. Faced with increased pressure, both in the U.S. and Panama, Noriega introduced a wave of brutal repression, attacking protesters in the streets and jailing hundreds of opponents. The Reagan administration now openly called for his removal. We do want Noriega out of there and a return to a civilian democratic government. But behind the scenes, the administration was secretly negotiating with Noriega, promising not to indict him on drug charges if he would cooperate with U.S. objectives in Central America. Gabriel Gemma, director of the Independent Commission of Inquiry on the U.S. invasion of Panama, spoke to Noriega about his negotiations with the U.S. General Noriega told us that there were a number of demands placed on him directly, both through Poindexter and other meetings, where State Department pressured him to change the Panamanian government's policy on several issues. He said that by far the most pressing was a demand by the United States that Noriega and the Panamanian government allow the U.S. to expand their military presence in Panama and to renegotiate the treaties to allow them to keep control over the 14 bases, military bases, that presently exist in Panama. Noriega refused to agree to the U.S. demands or to relinquish his power in Panama. In February 1988, two U.S. federal grand juries in Florida indicted Noriega, accusing him of drug trafficking, money laundering, and racketeering. It was the first time a foreign head of state had ever been indicted in the United States. The U.S. now undertook a systematic effort to overthrow Noriega. Economic sanctions were stepped up and additional troops were dispatched to Panama. The United States tonight declared in effect that Panama's General Manuel Noriega is a threat to this country's national security. Mr. Noriega, the drug-indicted, drug-related, indicted dictator of Panama. We want to bring him to justice, we want to get him out, and we want to restore democracy to Panama, and so when you read these outrageous charges by a drug-related, indicted dictator, discount them. They are total lies. Still unable to force Noriega from power, the United States turned its efforts to influencing the upcoming 1989 Panamanian national elections. The Bush administration, working through the CIA and the National Endowment for Democracy, funneled more than $10 million into the opposition slate of candidates. Presidential candidate Guillermo Endara, a wealthy corporate lawyer educated in the United States, and his vice presidential running mates, Guillermo Billy Ford and Ricardo Arias Calderon. If the same scenario that those elections um, occurred and had taken place in the United States, they would have been illegal. In the United States, accepting money from a foreign government for the purpose of influencing a domestic election is illegal. 
those elections were irregular from the beginning. How can you call it a fair election? The strategy is was applied in Panama, they applied in Nicaragua, and they were applied to every government who disagree with the U.S. foreign policy. They use economical sanction to starve people then to impose a vote on these people because people vote to get bread when they're hungry. And I don't think that's democracy. The elections were held, the counting of the votes began, it became clear that uh, the PRD would lose the election. And at that point, uh, the, and not for the first time in the history of Panama or many other countries in Central America, the uh, military rulers halted the electoral process. The country erupted in violence as ballot boxes were seized. The U.S. supported candidates who had been leading in vote tallies were brutally beaten on the streets of Panama City in front of rolling TV cameras. Noriega's Dignity Battalion, although none were ever identified. It was a photo opportunity that crystallized world public opinion against Noriega. Good evening. The violence in Panama escalated sharply this evening when government goons attacked candidates opposed to General Manuel Noriega were attacked and beaten up on the streets of Panama City. Guillermo Indara, and one of the opposition presidential candidates, was beaten and injured during the day by backers of military soldiers. Later, the presidential candidate, Indara, was released from the hospital. It has been confirmed that he was attacked by goons. The following day, President Bush ordered 2,000 additional troops into Panama. I will do what is necessary to protect the lives of American citizens. And we will not be intimidated by the bullying tactics, brutal though they may be, of the dictator Noriega. After the election fiasco, the Panamanian National Assembly declared a state of emergency and appointed Noriega head of state. George Bush now openly encouraged the Panamanian military to revolt against Noriega. Well, we'd love to see him get him out. We'd like to see him out of there. With support and encouragement from the United States, a group of officers from the Panamanian Defense Forces, the PDF, began planning a military coup to overthrow Noriega. They secretly met several times with the U.S. Southern Command to coordinate support for the overthrow. The role to be played by the United States Army was to block certain roads, make sure that certain airfields were not made available for use by elements loyal to or potentially loyal to General Noriega. With these assurances, the insurgent troops launched the coup attempt. They quickly overpowered Noriega's guards seized the PDF headquarters and captured Noriega. But the Americans did not carry through on their promises. Forces loyal to Noriega were allowed to gain entrance and crush the rebellion, freeing General Noriega.
President Bush later denied any U.S. involvement in the operation. This is some American operation, and I can tell you that is not true. But I would repeat it. The hopes that it leads today instantly to Panama. We have no argument with the Panamanian Defense Forces. We have no argument with them. We've had good relations with the Panamanian Defense Forces. But investigative journalist Doug Vaughn, who was in Panama during the failed coup attempt, disputes Bush's claim. The idea, at least on the American side, was to lead these coup plotters along, to seduce them into believing that they had the support of the United States, and then at a critical moment abandon them so that then the excuse could be made that we had to smash the PDF completely, that we couldn't rely anymore on disgruntled officers inside the Panamanian army to rise up against Noriega, and we would have to do this job ourselves. After the October coup attempt, 1,300 additional U.S. troops were flown into Panama and offensive military equipment was secretly deployed. The U.S. military stepped up its campaign of intimidation and provocation, setting up roadblocks, confronting PDF forces, and conducting offensive military maneuvers outside of U.S. jurisdiction. They have blocked passage here, calling it a security problem. What security? The Panamanian people would never threaten them. They are the ones threatening. They are the ones who charge us with their weapons. What's wrong with them? They charge the bayonets at us. They charge us with their bayonets in order to scare us. They said not to step onto that area, but they're on our side in Panama's jurisdiction. So what the hell's with them? It came to an inch that that day the killing didn't start. Because the tanks and everything were ready to go in to kill the Panamanian people. In the final months before the invasion, the Army Special Operations Command sent a highly secret Delta Force team to Panama. There were numerous actions undertaken by that Delta team which were reported in the United States press as uh, provocations undertaken by Panamanians against the United States, infiltrations of United States positions, shots fired in the direction of, of uh, United States uh, perimeters and positions, uh, roughing up of United States citizens in the streets. Sabina Virgo, a national labor organizer, was in Panama just weeks before the invasion. Provocations against the Panamanian people by United States military troops were very frequent in Panama. And they had several results, and in my opinion, probably a couple of different intents. One, I think, was to create an international incident, was to have United States troops just hassle the Panamanian people until an incident resulted. And from that incident, the United States could then say that they were going into Panama for the protection of American life, which is in fact exactly what happened. On the night of December 16th, a group of U.S. Marines ran a military roadblock in front of PDF headquarters and were fired on by Panamanian guards. 
Lieutenant Robert Bolivar Paz, a U.S. Marine intelligence officer, was killed. The Marines were reported to be part of a group called the Hard Chargers, known for provoking confrontations with PDF forces. The Pentagon claimed the Marines were unarmed and lost, but local witnesses said that they were armed and exchanged fire with the PDF headquarters, wounding a soldier and two civilians. An American serviceman has been killed in a weekend shooting incident. Another what American U.S. officials called an example of General Noriega's cruelty and brutality. The death of an American officer, which President Bush condemned today as an outrage. And in another incident, a Navy officer and his wife were detained. He beaten and threatened with death. She threatened sexually. Another American serviceman also threatening that man's wife. Strong public support for a reprisal was all but guaranteed. Four days later, on December 20th, U.S. troops invaded Panama. The invasion was codenamed Operation Just Cause. Shortly after midnight, U.S. troops simultaneously attacked 27 targets many of which were in densely populated areas. One of the primary targets in Panama City was the headquarters of the Panamanian Defense Forces, located in the crowded neighborhood of El Chorillo. U.S. troops shelled the area for four hours before moving in and calling for surrender. We ask you to surrender. If you do not, we are prepared to level each and every building. About 10 minutes after they've been speaking this surrender, surrender, we start to hear the helicopters start to bomb the quartel and start to use their, their laser ray and things like that. So we hit, we hit the ground. It soon became clear that the objectives were not limited only to military targets. According to witnesses, many of the surrounding residential neighborhoods were deliberately attacked and destroyed. The helicopters were heavily armed, firing powerful machine guns and rockets, and they were firing indiscriminately. They weren't just looking for military targets. They were firing at many civilians. People were running all over, trying to escape. <laughs> They shot at everything that moved, without mercy and without thinking whether they were children or women or people fighting. Instead, everything that moved, they shot. We all thought that they would just take Noriega. They said that's what they wanted. They would take him and would respect everyone else. After the bombing, the bombing been started, been going on for a few, few hours. The soldiers say, tell everybody to come out with their hand on their head. And they direct us to the church. When we were in the church about six o'clock in the morning, all of a sudden, the building starts to burn in front of the church. The people, as they know they have, the only thing they have was inside the place 
they tried to run out to get water to house it. And the American soldiers tell them to get out. Some people, you know, stubborn, they try to go in, and the American soldiers, he shot it up in the air. <laughs> and the people that get scared, and they run back. We saw that the North Americans were denying people access to their homes. They sent people back and threatened them with their machine guns and forbid anyone to get close to the houses or walk in or around the alleys leading to the houses. Then they began to set the houses on fire. The Panamanian soldiers then know each alley, how to go in and how to come out and where to go and come through, you know, from one street to another street, climb up and go to a balcony and things. So the only way I think the American soldiers could get rid of that, that danger was to burn down the buildings then. That way the, the, the Panamanian soldiers couldn't have nowhere to hide. I'm unaware of any operations by U.S. military to go through and systematically burn down buildings. Uh, you get fires that, that are started by weapons, but I, I haven't seen any reports of U.S. military folks going through and setting buildings on fire. The North Americans began burning down in Chorrillo at about 6.30 in the morning. They would throw a small device into a house and it would catch on fire. They would burn a house and then move to another and begin the process all over again. They burned from one street to the next. They coordinated the burning through walkie-talkie. From there, the whole of Chorillo went to nothing. used Panama as a testing ground for newly developed high-tech weapons, such as the stealth fighter, the Apache attack helicopter, and laser-guided missiles. There are also reports that can't be explained indicating the use of experimental and unknown weaponry. We have testimony about combatants who died literally melted with their guns as a result of a laser. We know of automobiles that were cut in half by these lasers of atrocities committed by weapons that fire poison darts which produce massive bleeding. I think there's a high probability that there was uh, a use of sophisticated weaponry merely to test it. Ramsey Clark, former U.S. Attorney General, has conducted extensive research into the invasion. Uh, above all, though, there was um, a use beyond any conceivable necessity of just sheer firepower. Just an excessive use of force uh, beyond any possible justification. 
President Bush wanted to make certain that this was going to be a success. This was going to be his vindication, a, a denial of the wimp factor in spades. So they sent down a force that wasn't going to encounter any effective resistance, would simply overwhelm the opposition, and the fact that it would cause tremendous peripheral damage, damage to innocent civilians in, on a wide scale, was not of concern in the planning. What we intended to do was to reduce collateral damage. I don't know what that means. Collateral damage? That means if the target is right here, you're trying not to have damage to other places. You're trying to have damage to a specific target because that's a military target, and you're trying to minimize damage outside of the military target. And they worked. My God, we were sending in artillery and airstrikes against a very heavily populated urban area. There was absolutely no question that there were going to be immense numbers of civilian casualties. We walked among the dead and saw the tanks run over and crush our dead. We saw a great number of civilian cars with whole families inside. Kids, women and the driver torn to pieces and crushed by the tanks. The soldiers passed the tanks over the people's bodies. Some of them dead, some of them wounded. And there were cases that we know, for example, the case of Manuel Carro, the case of Alexander Hubert, and some others whose bodies were totally destroyed. During the days and weeks following the invasion, the U.S. policy of applying overwhelming deadly force continued. There were many reports of indiscriminate killings and executions of unarmed civilians. We have eyewitness accounts on the part of a number of Panamanians where soldiers took Panamanians who had been captured uh, after the invasion and executed them on the street. I have seen no reports of U.S. soldiers executing anyone in Panama. We have carefully checked out every such report. And if we think there is evidence that a U.S. soldier murdered a Panamanian, we will court-martial that soldier. Uh, that, uh, that sort of behavior would be absolutely unprofessional, totally unacceptable, and illegal. Rafael Olivardia, a community leader from El Chirillo, was taken to the Balboa High School detention camp the morning after the attack. There were many Panamanian troops at the Balboa concentration camp. They didn't seem to know what was going on. They were sitting on the grass with their arms and feet tied with plastic bands. I, along with many other people from El Chorrillo, witnessed their execution right in front of us. Eight of the soldiers at the entrance were executed by U.S. troops. There were many reports of unprovoked killings at U.S. roadblocks. One woman told human rights investigators how her brother and four friends were killed at a roadblock on December 23rd. 
three days after the initial attack. All five of the passengers were forced out of the car and put face down on the ground. They were riddled with bullets. They were simply going to visit family members when they were detained and killed in the street. Although 19 cases of homicide and alleged executions were filed with the Southern Command, all but two of these cases were internally reviewed and dismissed. During the invasion and throughout the days and weeks that followed, access by the news media was tightly controlled. The Pentagon flew in a 16-person press pool from the major U.S. media. The pool did not reach Panama, however, until after the crucial first four hours of the attack and were restricted to U.S. military bases for the next day and a half. Our regret is that we were not able to use the media pool more effectively. The goal was to get reporters down there so that they could see for themselves the early hours of the operation. Now, once they got there, uh, we had a breakdown in our ability to move them around. Uh, helicopters that we thought were going to be available had to be pulled off and were needed for, for the operation itself. The press pool that went down there was managed from the day they arrived. They were only taken to see what the government, what the military wanted them to see, and there has been continuous uh, suppression and denial of the extent of damage which was inflicted during that invasion. Many journalists who tried to investigate on their own were stopped by U.S. troops from entering areas that were attacked. One of the few journalists who was able to penetrate the military's restrictions was Panamanian photographer Julio Guerra. I had already taken photographs in the Chorillo area. I'd also taken photos of some dead bodies in the street. When a North American soldier told me I couldn't walk any further, they wanted to take my camera away. But I didn't let them. So they made me open the camera and expose the roll of film with the shots of the dead bodies I had taken. Military folks shouldn't be taking film out of cameras. Uh, you get young guys in combat, they get concerned, they do that sometimes. Uh, I don't think that was the norm. Another Panamanian journalist, Manuel Becker, a cameraman for a London-based news service, was covering the attack on the night of the invasion when he was stopped by U.S. troops. We almost got to the edge of El Chorillo. As soon as we were able to, we started videotaping. But the North American troops took our tapes and placed us virtually under arrest until the bombing was over. A Spanish news photographer who, uh, in the early moments, was able to get a picture of bodies lined up in the morgue was subsequently shot under very uh, strange circumstances. There was not a conflict, but uh, according to the reports of colleagues, an American soldier just up, took aim, and shot him down. The U.S. military also targeted the Panamanian media. 
radio stations were immediately taken over and destroyed. U.S. forces occupied TV stations and began transmitting their own signal. Many journalists were either arrested or fired. One of Panama's largest daily newspapers, La Repubblica, was raided, ransacked, and closed down by American troops. The U.S. military's control over all of the media was so effective that there is almost no video footage of the first three days of the invasion other than what was shot by the military's own camera crews. It's so ironic that uh, the kind of very tight press control that you used to see in Russia under Stalin and under Brezhnev, and which was finally ending under Gorbachev with Glasnost, that we've seen in the United States exactly the opposite phenomenon, a new degree of press control, which we never had in Vietnam so that the American people didn't really know what had happened until it was all over and it was too late. During the week of the invasion, more than 18,000 people who fled from the areas of attack were forced into temporary detention centers created by the U.S. forces. It was a war. It was a battle. And the way you get it over with is to find the people who are most likely to keep shooting at you and try to detain them. And that was the goal of that operation. We arrived at the concentration camp of Balboa, a school. It was surrounded by a barbed wire fence and full of heavily armed soldiers. When we arrived, they picked all the men between the ages of 15 and 55 and put us on an army truck. The women were crying, shouting. They were pushing us around and we didn't know where they were taking us. They took us to a secret place, and we were submitted to an intense interrogation. Then they put a card in front of us and took our picture. So all men between 15 and 55 had this card with their ID number and their refugee number. As part of the invasion, the U.S. forces worked with newly installed Panamanian officials to institute repressive measures that continue in Panama today. American forces took control of the public buildings, government ministries, and the university. Almost every organization opposed to United States policy had its offices raided and destroyed. Thousands of individuals were arrested. Arias Calderon, Endara, and the Attorney General Rogelio Cruz effectively wrote down the names 
of their political enemies, gave them to U.S. military personnel who, going around like stormtroopers, would break down doors, drag people out of their houses, take them to detention centers, only because their name was given by one of these officials and that there was no legal case against these people whatsoever. I got it, I got it, I got you covered. Bust that door up there, man. Yeah. Come on, keep the eye on the fucking Government officials had to go underground, many of them, in order not to be arrested, including university professors. There were uh, former government and diplomatic officials that were arrested and interned at refugee camps and some of them in prisons. The list runs into the thousands. Why are they after him? Why aren't they after Bush instead? He's the one who's killing people all over the place. Why are they harassing a worker who's defending other workers? Twenty-six times the U.S. troops were here searching my house. They would surround everything with tanks and would take books, personal documents, photos of Torrillos. They would search it whenever they felt like it. Balbina Herrera de Perignon was the mayor of San Miguelito and a member of the National Assembly. After the invasion, she was subjected to a relentless campaign of slander and harassment. The Southern Command put up wanted posters with my photo. If you see her, please call such and such a number at Southern Command. They interrogated my children, my three little ones. They would ask them where their mother was, where their father was. They would ask them for information about us. Escolastico Calvo, the editor of La Repubblica newspaper, had been openly critical of the new government and the U.S. invasion. What I don't understand is that they've been holding me here 30 days and no one has talked to me about my case, about my charge. This is what we want a decision on. Is there justice here or not? Calvo was imprisoned for 18 months. No charges were ever filed against him. They arrested close to 7,000 Panamanian individuals. They arrested almost every trade union leader, the leaders of the nationalist parties, of progressive parties, of left parties in Panama. They arrested people who were cultural leaders. There are still hundreds of Panamanians who remain in jail with no due process, with no formal charges against them. As a result of the U.S. invasion, an estimated 20,000 Panamanians lost their homes. Hardest hit were residents in the poor neighborhoods of San Miguelito, Colon, Panama Viejo, and El Chorillo.
survivors of the invasion received little assistance from either the newly installed Panamanian government or the United States. Many moved into bombed out buildings and makeshift shelters. Several thousand were moved to Albrook Airfield and housed in two large airplane hangars where many languished for more than a year. In hangar number one, we constructed 506 cubicles. It's a 10 by 10 uh, foot cubicle which holds each of the families and um, in each cubicle we can put as much as four cats and a small mattresses for the kids. Although the Albrook refugee camp was administered by the Panamanian Red Cross and the United States Agency for International Development, U.S. military police would frequently enter the grounds, restrict access, and make arrests. With explicit permission from the directors of the camp, our camera crew entered to interview refugees about their experience of the invasion and its aftermath. Bueno, let me see if there's anything else. Hello. But even though we had authorization, U.S. military police and the Criminal Investigation Division of the U.S. Army tried to stop our crew from videotaping. Marshal's office just called me and they said that he detained everybody from filming until they get clearance. I don't know why, that's just what I've been told. I don't think that's right. I think the world is of the, of the right to know the truth. Sir, please, we are the victims. We are the victims. We lose everything. We lose our family. So know why the world not supposed to know the truth, sir? surrounded the camera crew, forcing the military to withdraw. Finally, the refugees were able to tell their story. We're tired of being stuck inside this hangar, sleeping on a cot. Many old people are sick. There's no medical attention. And the children, when? When are they going to put an end to this? We are the victims of Endara's presidency. Why did it have to be us? Why didn't they choose the rich neighborhood? If they had picked 50th Street, it would have been repaired by now. Since it was El Chorrillo, they have forgotten about us. The people are in bad shape. They have no clothes, nothing to wear. I buy them clothes sometimes, and sometimes food out of my own pocket. But one can't do that every day. We need to avoid a problem with the Chorilleros. In the state they're in, they're liable to start a riot. There could be more shootings and more thefts because the people of El Chorilla are very riled up. If they want us to close up all the streets in the country, we're going to do it. But we won't answer. 
We want to get out of this goddamn place. They're we are tired of this. This is not no democracy. They said they get rid of Norega and they're worse of Norega. They're plenty worse. Because with Norega we used to eat our three meals a day. Now we're not even eating one. More than 60 Panamanians are reported to have died in that big More than 50 Panamanians were killed. A doctor at a government hospital in Panama City. Casualties, but we've only had really one report on them throughout the day, so we don't know how extensive Hot. they are. We're getting, I mean, there's, there's no reason to doubt the reports, obviously, that we are getting from the Pentagon, and yet all the information that we are getting from the Pentagon seems to conflict with all the eyewitness information that we're able to get out of Panama City. And we have another panel. How many people were killed in Panama, and who were they? These questions may never be answered because the United States military undertook elaborate efforts to conceal the number of dead, how they died, and the location of their bodies. Children died. Pregnant women died. Seniors died. Adolescents died. Soldiers died. Victims who had nothing to do with politics, the invasion, or the Noriega regime. <laughs> what happened in Panama is a hidden horror. Many of the bodies were bulldozed into piles and immolated in the slums where they were collected. Other bodies were left in the garbage chutes of the poor projects in which they died from the shooting, from the artillery, from the machine guns, from the airborne attacks. Others were said to have been pushed into the ocean. When we went down to El Chorrillo, there were still dead bodies inside cars. There was a man and a woman with a child. All of them burnt up inside a car. People from El Chorrillo never thought they would see so many dead bodies. See them being burned on the beach. Right, right on the beach they're being burned. In the early hours of the invasion, U.S. troops took control of the hospitals and morgues. Many of the doctors and hospital personnel were detained, and thousands of official documents were confiscated. The truth of the matter is that we don't even know how many Panamanians we have killed, but we should have more information on what happened. How many civilians were killed? The National Human Rights Commission of Panama interviewed hundreds of people in an effort to determine how many had died. What we have is different testimonies that help us to arrive to the conclusion that for sure there were more than 4,000 people who died. You have the UN Human Rights Commission estimating 2,500 deaths. You have the two major independent human rights organizations in the region estimating 2,500, 3,000, 3,500. You have uh, Isabel Cordero and her organization estimating probably about 4,000. That's an enormous human toll. The U.S. military said 250 civilians were killed. I mean, there isn't a credible source in Panama that believes that's true whether it's ambulance drivers, human rights monitors, people, doctors who worked in hospitals, neighbors of bombed out uh, blocks. It's just clearly false. That story would be so easy to tell for any journalist worth his or her salt. 
but they're not telling us. I made a point of reading the European press as well as the American press when the invasion occurred and immediately I could see that whereas the American press was talking about maybe a couple of hundred civilian casualties, from the very beginning the European press was talking about a thousand civilians dead or two thousand civilians dead. So the real facts are that the American people didn't really know what had happened in Panama. You would think from the video clips that we had seen that this whole thing was just a Mardi Gras. That the people in Panama were just jumping up and down with glee. And that our forces had just moved in there and without taking any lives at all, have brought liberty and freedom to these uh, oppressed people. When they interviewed people in Panama about what they thought of it, they invariably were interviewing white, middle-class people who could speak English. They didn't really go into the poor neighborhoods where people had been bombed. Did you see one media actually go into the bombed areas and talk to people who had lost a family or lost everything they had in the bombings? The transport planes. They focused totally on the invasion as a tactical event. Was it effective? Did it work well? Uh, are we losing many American lives? Another unit moved in by helicopter. Fifteen American servicemen have died in the combat today. Some yeah, of it, but like not all the news is good. American casualties are now put at 15 dead and more than one. Also announced that one American civilian has been killed. That would make a total of 16. Panama fighting is a school teacher apparently hit by stray gunfire. Gertrude Candy Halen from Dixon, Illinois, is the 20th American to die in the fight. They focus with utter ethnocentrism only on American lives. The only life that was precious, the only life that one could report on, the only life that one could consider as a serious loss was an American life. Tonight, as we end this program, we hear from President Bush on the high price these young men paid. And we say goodbye to them. human life is precious and and yet I have to answer yes uh, it has been worth it in the months following the invasion Panamanians were shocked to discover the existence of mass graves where hundreds, perhaps thousands, of bodies were hastily dumped into pits and buried by U.S. troops. There was a report of what some were calling a mass grave, which I think is a term that is uh, imprecise. No, I didn't say we had any mass burials. There was one uh, case of... Uh, some number, but I cannot quote to you that number.
To date, there have been 15 mass graves that have been identified throughout Panama. The United States military was directly responsible for the killings of the men, women, and children that are in these mass graves and for their burial. These mass graves exist throughout Panama and some are believed to be on U.S. military bases, which creates a difficulty in terms of access to these mass graves. Among these corpses, we found many young people, 15, 16, 18 years old. We found people in their 60s and in their 70s. We found people killed by a shot to the back of their heads, dead with their hands tied, dead with casts on their legs or arms. Although the Pentagon insists that no more than 516 Panamanians were killed, they do concede that over 75% of those killed were civilians. Families of the victims continue to demand a full accounting of the missing and the dead. Who has the right to determine how many people should be killed in an invasion? I think if one person got killed in an, an invasion that is illegal, that it violates all principles of human rights, the number of people, the quantity, the figures, if it's 10,000 or if it's one, is irrelevant. The issue that innocent people were killed. die. Although the U.S. media created a perception of support for the invasion within the United States, the invasion was overwhelmingly condemned in the international community. If you look at any document in international law, any of numerous treaties, it's clear that this invasion was illegal. It's not debatable. The Panama invasion violates the UN Charter and the OAS Charter, which have specific uh, prohibitions against invasions of a sovereign country and invasions of the territorial integrity of other countries. Um, these prohibitions are very strict and clear under international law. The United States actions in violation of human rights also violates the Geneva Conventions which protects civilians from indiscriminate acts of violence as had occurred against civilian victims in Panama. The four biggest, most important papers in this country all endorsed the rightness of the Panama invasion. That's the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, strong endorsement, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Every one of them. Now, uh, a little body known as the United Nations had a vote about this. On December 29th, they voted by an overwhelming majority to condemn the invasion as, in their words, a flagrant violation of international law. So I was uh, interested to see that night on the NBC Nightly News with that great newscaster Deborah Norville, absolutely no mention whatsoever of this vote. 
turning to CBS, the bastion of responsible broadcasting, I found a full 10 seconds lavished on that story. At the United Nations today, the General Assembly adopted a resolution deploring the U.S. invasion of Panama as a, quote, flagrant violation of international law. The vote 75 to 20 with 40 abstentions. The media was so cooperative with the government because the media are owned by the same interests that are being defended in Central America by that government policy. The media are not close to corporate America. They're not favorable to corporate America. They are corporate America. They're an integral part of corporate America. We are a plutocracy. We ought to face it. A country in which wealth controls. It may be true of all countries, more or less, but it's uniquely true of ours because of our materialism and the concentration of of wealth here. Even our democratic processes are hardly that because money dominates politics and we know it. <laughs> and through politics uh, it dominates government and it dominates the media. We really need uh, desperately to find new ways to hear independent voices and points of view. Uh, it's the only way we're going to find the truth. The truth about the invasion of Panama remains hidden from most Americans. Those who have studied the official accounts have discovered many contradictions and have arrived at disturbing conclusions. I have studied uh, everything that the president has said as to reasons why he ordered the invasion. And none of those things, singly or collectively, makes any legal moral or constitutional sense. One of the reasons for the invasion was to take the wimp image off President George Bush. He had had the uh, what now seems to be the necessary blooding of a United States president to show his, uh, his forcefulness and his machismo. This was a chance for the military to show what it could do. If they kill an American Marine, that's real bad. And if they threaten and brutalize the wife of an American citizen, sexually threatening the, the, uh, the lieutenant's wife while kicking him in the groin over and over again, this president is going to do something about it. When he would say that the loss of American life was the last straw, sure, there must be something we could have done. Certainly, there must have been papers we could have filed. We could have gone to the world court. We could have gone to the United Nations or maybe the organizations of American states. But invade a country because of this is absolutely ridiculous. The excuse that the invasion was to protect American lives is the one that's always given. The fact is there are 35,000 American citizens there and none of them were in any danger. I was there three weeks before the invasion. There's simply no evidence, and I don't think the administration has ever bothered to even give any evidence to that statement. The goals of the United States have been to safeguard the lives of Americans, to defend democracy in Panama. Then President Bush said we had to go to restore democracy in Panama. How in the world do you restore that which has never existed? Panama has never been a democracy since we created Panama for our own purposes in 1903. And all we did was go down to restore American control and dominance in Panama. The new government installed by the invasion 
was headed by the U.S.-backed candidates from the aborted national election, Andara, Calderon, and Ford. Hours before the invasion, they were taken to a U.S. military base where they were sworn in as the president and vice president. But the new government has enjoyed little popular support within Panama. Anti-government demonstrations occur regularly, and there have been numerous attempts from within the Panamanian police force to seize military control of the government. U.S. troops were mobilized several times to crush these insurrections. Every time there's a crisis, the U.S. military takes over. They give orders, they subordinate that military because they don't trust that military force. The conflict is still there. The oligarchy knows that if the United States were not there, they could not rule this country. But President Andara minimizes the significance of America's military occupation in Panama. I think we are Now, we practically are, have no occupation at all, practically. Uh, I, you don't see them in the street. I don't see them uh, uh, in Panama. Uh, however, there are a few here and there, but it's, it's not really an occupation. Of course he's not going to say that, um, that Panama is occupied. In fact, he might not even call it an invasion. Cousin is kind that were killed or massacred. He lives in the nice area, in the oligarchical area. And, um, you know, his interest was protected. He's not running Panama. He's a puppet of the U.S. government. The U.S. government is running Panama. They're running all of the ministries in Panama. He's only abiding by what he's told to do. The Bush administration claimed that another reason for the invasion was to remove Noriega in order to stem the flow of drugs into the United States. But according to a U.S. General Accounting Office report, cocaine traffic through Panama may have doubled in the two years following the invasion. There is also considerable evidence that key members of Panama's new government, including President Zendara, have been tied to the drug trade through banks and front companies that launder drug money. The involvement of uh, the Panamanian economy as a whole in uh, drug trafficking, arms running, various uh, questionable banking practices, in fact, involve most of the Panamanian elite, involve most of the people who now run this new U.S.-approved Panamanian government. And Dara and Ford, we all know, and Panamanians know, that they are the real drug traffickers. They have been, because Panama have had an history of the oligarchy being involved in drug trafficking. In the years preceding and throughout the invasion, the U.S. government and the major media consistently portrayed Manuel Noriega as America's most hated and evil enemy. General Noriega became a mythic figure 
there was an attempt to personify in Noriega all that was evil. It is very interesting that when General Noriega, when his office was captured, we discovered the red pajamas, the voodoo equipment, and the, the alleged cocaine that he was using, and the pornographic pictures in his desk. Now, I happened to have been in Chile with the United Nations at the time of the overthrow of uh, President Allende. And it's interesting that that same desk appeared in Chile with the pornographic pictures, the red pajamas, and the cocaine. The whole propaganda against him was to build up a pretext in order to invade Panama and to, and to say we invaded Panama because of Noriega. I don't know how, I don't know how uh, any, I don't know how Americans can be so stupid to believe this. I mean, how can you be so stupid? Like, for example, at one time, they had Noriega at gunpoint. They could have taken Noriega then, but the Americans didn't want Noriega. What they really wanted is to destroy the Panamanian army in order to do with the treaties what they wanted, which is what's happening now. Although the U.S. government's reasons for the invasion made no mention of eliminating the Panamanian Defense Forces, U.S. officials later admitted that destroying the PDF was a central part of the plan. It was not only Mr. Noriega, but his uh, accomplices and underlings who uh, stood for a uh, reprehensible government at the time, and therefore uh, you had to take down not only Mr. Noriega, but take down the elements of his uh, supporting entity in order to reduce the PDF to nothing. One of the objectives of the invasion, main objective, was to destroy the PDF. Why? The treaty, the Panama Canal Treaty, they state clearly that the year 2000, Panama will be responsible for the security, safety of the canal. To be responsible for the safety of a nation, you need to have an army. The elimination, the liquidation of the PDF means the extension, the continuity of the United States present as the only military force in our nation, which historically is the United States position. What they really want is to stay in Panama after the year 2000, and that is what they have achieved. To destroy the Panamanian Defense Forces, to impose a government complacent with U.S. interests, and to make Panama the control center for all of Latin America. The invasion sets the stage for the wars of the 21st century in South America. The 2,000-mile invasion from Washington to Panama City took place primarily with bases from the United States. The essential value of the Southern Command is to get another 2,000 miles of intervention capability, which takes us right into the heart of the Andean coca-producing region, where the wars of the next decade are entirely uh, likely to take place. Panama is another example of destroying a country to save it. Uh, and it's another case of how the United States uh, has exercised a might-make-right doctrine uh, among the smaller countries of the third world. It has long been U.S. practice to invade these countries, get what we want, and leave the people that live there to kind of rot.
Our country has been ruined, our homes have been destroyed, and we still have no real answers. So what's left but to take to the streets? Since we didn't lose our lives in the war, we're willing to risk them fighting for our rights. George Bush, may his children be spared with my daughters being subjected to. My daughter who doesn't want to live, may his generation be spared what our generation is living through. He should ask God for forgiveness for all the damage caused to many families down here. One year ago, the people of Panama lived in fear under the thumb of a dictator. Today, democracy is restored. Panama is free. In March 1991, President Guillermo Andara proposed a constitutional amendment that would forever abolish Panama's right to have an army. Later that year, a law was passed by the United States Congress to renegotiate the Panama Canal Treaties to ensure continued U.S. military presence in Panama, on the grounds that Panama was no longer capable of defending the canal. Talk show host Terry Anderson, known from Washington, D.C. to Los Angeles for articulating the popular rage, sat down with Californians for Population Stabilization to discuss the impact illegal immigration has had on black Americans. Anderson, who grew up in south-central Los Angeles and lives there still today, says that blacks in particular have suffered at job sites and in classrooms as a result of explosive illegal immigration. As he likes to say, if you ain't mad, you ain't paying attention. The new threat in this new millennium is politicians, mostly Democrats, but some of these rotten bastards happen to be Republicans also, but mostly Democrats, who are willing to not only look the other way, but are taking a proactive stance in making sure that the laws are not enforced under any circumstances. One of the most vile, heinous, anti-American representations of the new lawlessness is Speaker of the House Representative Nancy Pelosi. She is two accidents away from being the President of the United States, and recently she said that the enforcement of our current immigration laws are, quote, un-American, unquote. Unbelievable. Uh, I've lived in South Central LA my whole life. Uh, I saw the deterioration due to the illegal alien invasion. And one day I started listening to talk radio, and it happened to be George Putnam, who we all know. And uh, I kind of thought I was the only person involved in this. Well, not involved. I was the only person who felt this way. thought I was by myself, and I heard people call his show just as angry as I was. And I got more involved in talk radio. I, I looked around the neighborhood. I saw the, the, the denseness 
10, 20 people living in a two-bedroom house, four and five cars at each house, uh, corn growing in the front yard, chickens, goats in yards. This is all the stuff we never had when I was growing up there in the 50s and 60s. And all of a sudden we had it. I knew something was wrong. And then I got kind of... Uh, aware of things when I saw the amnesty of 1986. I said, I was a very non-political guy, but even as non-political as I was, I said, this ain't going to work, because if they do this, more will come. And that's what happened. Very slow in the 50s, almost non-existent. Uh, in the 60s, it began to change, basically, from a white culture to a black culture. And then all of a sudden, in the late 70s, early 80s, it started to change to an what I thought at that time was an immigrant culture. I later found out it was illegal aliens. And then it became very fast-paced. From, I would say, 85 until the present, present, it has just been unbelievably fast. Well, right now, if you're black in South Central LA, you can't get work. I'm not, there are people working. But if you go to McDonald's, you're a 15, 16-year-old kid, you go to McDonald's for an after-school job, weekend job, summer job, they want you to be bilingual. Bilingual to flip a hamburger, okay? Are there some black kids working in South Central in McDonald's and Jack in the Box? Yes, there are, but the majority are not. You will go into these places now. There used to be all black kids working there, are now all Hispanics with the one token black kid in there. Uh, construction work, non-existent for blacks, non-existent. I remember when they built the Magic Johnson Theater uh, owned by Sony and Magic Johnson. Uh, it was an all-white crew building this movie theater in the Crenshaw Mall. Black construction workers got very angry, picketed, went there and said, we want at least 50% of these jobs, which was correct. And they got 50% of the jobs. Now, you've got all these black construction workers out of jobs with no work, and every construction site now is all Hispanic, mostly illegal alien, and no black politician is saying a word. Even the janitors are becoming non-existent blacks. The only place that I've seen black folks still have a strong foothold, and that's slipping away, school janitors, LA Unified, okay, and bus drivers, LA Unified bus drivers, that Unified School District. That's the only place I still see a lot of blacks working. And the, the ticket agency to write your parking tickets is still predominantly black. Every other aspect of, of, of labor in South Central LA is now Hispanic. Well, you know, when it was whitey, you want half of his, but when it's another, and I hate this word, but I'll use it because you asked me, when it's another minority, unquote, then it's okay. As long as the minority's getting to work, black folks say, well, it's okay. And I say black folks, I mean black leaders. The black rank and file, you talk to them in the grocery store, you go to Pep Boys and talk to them, you go to the bank and talk to them, they will tell you they're fed up with this invasion, but the leaders will not let the public know that. There's two reasons why the, the, the black construction workers won't pick it. Number one, it's futile now, okay? They just know there's just no way they're going to get a job anyway. The other reason is the, 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 the numbers have been so decimated. We've been diluted now. A lot of blacks have moved out of that area. They've moved out to Lancaster, uh, uh, Palmdale, Moreno Valley. They've also moved back down south where the, where the parents got a plot of land or something, you know, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama. They've moved down there. So the numbers are down now, so they don't have any strength. The other thing is the third reason. The third reason is because of stigma. They're afraid of being labeled a racist. They, they are scared to death of that word. And they figure if they speak up, they're going to be labeled. Whenever you hear a black person speak up on this invasion issue, 
they'll always do a disclaimer first. I, I, I'm not against anybody. I like everybody. I love everybody. But it's always that way. They always do the disclaimer first, and then they say what's on their mind. I was at a, an event that, that Bernard Parks was there at the time. He was a what are you, city councilman now? He's a city councilman then. Yeah. He, he's in the 8th District, okay, which is very near where I live. There are construction projects in the same block where his office is that are all Hispanic, and he doesn't say one word about it. He told us at the meeting that night over in West L.A. that he, he, he was very adamant that 90% of construction workers in the city, not county, city of Los Angeles, were white. And everybody in this meeting asked him, what are you smoking? Yeah. Because, you know, they wanted some. Where, where is this at? Because, number one, there are zero white construction workers in L.A., and it just, just doesn't happen. Secondly, the, 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 to even say that about the county would have been ridiculous, but the city is just really, really stupid. And he actually said that that night, and everybody just laughed out loud. He's, he's an idiot. He really is. I have a theory, okay, and I believe it's correct, and I've done a lot of study on this. I've been to Washington, D.C., talked to all of them. It started out as get whitey, okay? Started out as get whitey. We're going to bring in these other, here's this word again, it keeps popping up. We're going to bring in this other group of minorities who are going to dilute whitey's power, okay? They're going to dilute Whitey's power. And then as the group started coming in, it became a tide that couldn't be reversed. So then it became, well, let's be nice to them, and maybe they'll vote for us. Well, they did in some cases, until they got one of their own to, to run for office. And I say one of their own. I'm not knocking all Hispanic Americans, because I love Hispanic Americans. I'm saying that a lot of Hispanic Americans are race-based, just as Maxine Water, Waters and Diane Watson and Jackson Lee and the rest are race-based. They believe in black only. Well, these Hispanic leaders believe in the same thing, and they side with illegal aliens. Our problem being black, we don't have any illegal aliens to side with that's going to give us power. But the Hispanics do. And then it became with the Black Caucus, well, wow, look what's happening. But if we speak up now, we'll sound like the white Republicans, so we better not. So it went from get whitey to maybe they'll vote for us to, wow, the water's boiling. Jamil Shaw is a very tragic case. We've got other cases, uh, Highland Park, where three or four blacks were killed just for being black. Uh, Canoga Park, where the LAPD gave a vocal warning to black folks, do not go to Canoga Park because your life could be in danger. Harbor City, man was walking his daughter to the grocery store one evening. A Mexican guy shot him in the back because he was black. The, the young girl, 204th Street, was killed because she was black. My point is this. There are sections of Los Angeles where blacks cannot go. If a black person goes to East L.A. and tries to buy a house, they will kill him. They will burn him out. It is, it's happened. But there's Hispanics living in all the previous black projects, the Jordan Downs, Nickerson Gardens, Imperial Courts, Pueblo del Rio, all of these projects, housing projects, that were once 100% black now are 50-50, and no Hispanic has been attacked because he was Hispanic. My point is, there's a place where we can't go, but there's no place they can't go. What do you attribute the uh, reluctance of the Latino leadership in the city of Los Angeles up to, including Mervio Rosa, to not speak more candidly and more aggressively about this issue? Very simple. They don't have to. Why would they speak up? They're winning. Their numbers are taking over. They're, they're going to be the 80% Los Angeles someday. Uh, they're taking over. Why would they speak up on our behalf? There's no reason to. They don't need us anymore. Villaraigosa can get elected without us now. I, I go out into the community. Wherever I'm at, I, I ask questions. I don't tell them who I am. 
And that's the thing about being on radio. People don't really know what you look like. But I go out into the black community, and I talk all the time to people. And I, you know, I may be in line somewhere. I say, man, what do you think about so-and-so and so-and-so? Man, they'll turn around and say, man, I thought I was the only one. They all say the very same thing. We're in bad shape in this city. This used to be a uh, multicultural city. It no longer is. There's no diversity in Los Angeles City anymore. And those same black people will tell you that they've got a relative who can't get a job. They've got a neighbor who plays loud mariachi music. They've got a neighbor who grows corn in his front yard. They'll tell you about their child in school who's in bilingual education and not learning a damn thing. They, they'll tell you all of this, every one of them. But if you ask them to stand up and come to a rally, they won't do it because they're afraid. I go to these churches. These churches have uh, town hall meetings. And I've been to a lot of these town hall meetings. Every time they have them, they'll bring in Tony Mohammed and uh, Earl Ofari Hutchinson and some of these other, quote, black leaders, unquote, self-appointed black leaders. They'll bring them in, and they are the only ones who take the pro-illegal alien position. And sometimes the minister of the church will. You know, that's about the money in the plate. But the black constituency that comes to these meetings is always 95 to 99% in favor of deportation of every one of them. And it's not just the black kids. No, no. The, Ameri the American Hispanics who don't speak Spanish, oh, they're, they're in trouble too. You know, they, they, com they complain. They call this radio show. They come in here and, and, and talk to me. I get emails from them all the time. The, the problem with the education system is a few years ago, we were closing schools in this, in this city because of under-enrollment, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Population had slowed down. They were combining schools, and every once in a while they would close one. We just built 165 new schools, 165 new schools. They were after 165,000 classroom seats, okay? All for what? It wasn't for the American kids. Americans aren't having a lot more kids. These were for an influx of people new to this country who happen to be Hispanic, happen not to speak any English, and happen to be in the country illegally. That's what happened. Or the, the, the illegal aliens came here and had babies here. My great-grandfather. My great-grandfather was a slave in the state of Louisiana. Obviously, I never met him. But... The ancestry handed down to me by those who came before me, my aunts and uncles and my father, and they all told me the stories of what it was like because it was passed on to them. And one of the greatest moments in our history was the day we were emancipated. Uh, we were emancipated with the Civil War, but we still had to have a, uh, we had to have something passed that said officially we were no longer property, we were now citizens, and anything born to us was citizens. That was written for my ancestors, okay. Having said that, we've got a new misinterpretation of it that everybody from the world has used to come here and have babies and make them American citizens. It is wrong, it is a misinterpretation, and it angers me personally because it was written for my ancestors and now it's being misused and therefore used against me. I'm suffering from it now because of the influx of so many people and their and their progeny that they have once they get here. I'm suffering from that. My kids and my grandkids are going to suffer because they took an amendment meant for us and turned it around against us. That's outrageous. The media basically at large won't touch this issue as, as in any form. And when they do, it's always pro-illegal alien. When they do touch it as far as consequences to other people, it's alleged that this is hurting black folks. It's alleged that this did this. It's alleged that they're costing us tax dollars. It's never a fact that it's happening, even though they know it's a fact. The only avenue of media uh, where we have a fair shake is talk radio, conservative talk radio. 
And even that sucks sometimes. Hannity, one of the most powerful people in this country, who could really do us a lot of good on this issue, and a guy that I would like to have a beer with. I think he's a nice guy. But Hannity sucks on this issue. All he talks about is the border, the border, the border, the border. There's more to the border. When's he going to do our show on what's happening to these communities, these kids that are getting murdered by illegal aliens, the fact that we can't get jobs, the fact that teenagers have to speak Spanish to flip a hamburger. Where's the Hannity show on that? Where's even a segment on that on his his television program? You won't find it. O'Reilly, here's another powerful guy who, st- who tells us we're going to have to amnesty this 20, 25 million people. What is that? That These are lawbreakers, and you're saying, well, we have to amnesty them. We can't round them all up. We don't have to round them up. Make enough, enough effort to enforce the laws on the books. You make it where they can't educate, they can't medicate, they can't incarcerate. Make it where they can't buy a house, they can't open a business, they can't rent an apartment, and I guarantee you they'll go home. What about the, 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 the janitors in West L.A., Century City, Beverly Hills, who were making, black janitors, some, some white, who were making $12 an hour 15 years ago? That was great money. That was great money. All of a sudden, the, the, the owners, the building owners got together in collusion, broke the union, hired Hispanic illegal aliens from Mexico and El Salvador. They came in, they said, we, we're going to, you guys, minimum wage was five and a quarter, I believe. They says, uh, we'll give you five and a quarter, fine. They went and told the black and white employees, we'll give you five and a quarter, you can keep your job. Well, if a guy's making $12 an hour, he's got, he's got insurance payments, house note, kids, car payment, all set up around 12 bucks. $5 an hour will kill him. He can't, he can't survive, so they lost their jobs. So guess what happened? The illegal aliens came in, got all the jobs, and then went on strike. And then messy Jesse Jackson marched downtown L.A. holding a broom in his hand, talking about justice for janitors. I mean, unbelievable. He's supposed to be Mr. Black. He's supposed to be, I'm so for the black community. These guys just put his people out of work, Americans out of work, and he marches with a mop in his hand talking about justice for janitors. I I think it's going to get worse, but I think one thing that might save us, and I hate to use this as a savior, is this economic situation. Uh, I think that's going to slow things down. I think amnesty will be a hard sell now for so many people out of work. It was a stupid idea. In good times, in bad times, it's absolutely outrageous. But in Los Angeles itself, uh, I don't think we're done, but I think unless we get some more American thinking back into this, this city and, and, and less left-wing liberal uh, idiotic ideologies that are taking place where you give everything away to anybody who wants it, whether they're legal or illegal. I think we're, we're sunk pretty much for quite a while. As we progressed and the races came together, we started to drift off into this black pride, black awareness thing, which I never really got, but I saw it and liked it and didn't like it. It brought us together in one way, but it also kept us from being full Americans. But we never ever talked about taking over a country. We never talked about, we had no Aslan. We never talked about reclaiming a part of America for our race or for some previous country we came from or continent. We never flew a foreign flag. We never did any of that. And that's what angers me now. These, these young Hispanic kids now, they, if you ask them, kids that are second and third generation 
uh, uh, Californians, Americans, will tell you they're Mexican. I'm Mexican. I hear them say it all the time. Wasn't your mother born? Yeah. Wasn't your mother and father's mother born? Yeah. But I'm Mexican. I'm not American. I'm Mexican. But when you've got a country, and I'm not against immigration. I, I, I want to cut it way back. But I think we need some fresh blood every once in a while. But when you have this many people coming this fast illegally, guess what? They don't have to. They don't have to assimilate. They can keep their own 100% culture. Same culture they ran away from, they can drag here. Terry Anderson's show can be heard every Sunday night in Los Angeles on KRLA 870 AM from 9 to 10 PM. Other stations carrying his show can be found at theterryandersonshow.com. For more information on how you can help, go to www.capsweb.org. It is not a day for politics. I save this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land and every one of our lives. It is not the concern of any one race. The victims of the violence are black and white, rich and poor, young and old, famous and unknown. They are most important of all human beings whom other human beings loved and needed. No one can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. And yet it goes on and on and on in this country of ours. Whenever any American's life is taken by another American unnecessarily, whenever we tear at the fabric of our lives, which another man has painfully and clumsily woven for himself and his children, whenever we do this, then the whole nation is degraded. Too often we honor swagger and bluster and the wielders of force. Too often we excuse those who are willing to build their own lives on the shattered dreams of other human beings. But this much is clear. Violence breeds violence. Repression breeds retaliation. And only a cleansing of our whole society can remove this sickness from our souls. But when you teach a man to hate and to fear his brother, when you teach that he is a lesser man because of his color or his beliefs or the policies that he pursues, when you teach that those who differ from you threaten your freedom or your job or your home or your family, then you also learn to confront others not as fellow citizens, but as enemies. To be met not with cooperation, but with conquest. To be subjugated and to be mastered. We learn at the last to look at our brothers as aliens. Alien men with whom we share a city, but not a community. Men bound to us in common dwelling 
but not in a common effort. We learn to share only a common fear, only a common desire to retreat from each other, only a common impulse to meet disagreement with force. Our lives on this planet are too short. The work to be done is too great to let this spirit flourish any longer in this land of ours. Of course, we cannot banish it with a program, but we can perhaps remember, if only for a time, that those who live with us are our brothers, that they share with us the same short moment of life, that they seek, as do we, nothing but the chance to live out their lives in purpose and in happiness, winning what satisfaction and fulfillment that they can. Surely this bond of common faith, surely this bond of common goals can begin to teach us something. Surely we can learn at the least to look around at those of us, of our fellow men. And surely we can begin to work a little harder to bind up the wounds among us and to become in our hearts brothers and countrymen once again. AVR, let me count the ways. Listen online to your choice of seven streams by going to theamericanvoice.com. For those who don't have access to a computer, you can listen on your phone through our phone bridge Monday through Friday from 9 to 9 Pacific by calling 1-712-580-1100. Enter the code 97524-POUNDS. This is not toll-free, but if you have unlimited long-distance or cell minutes, it's great. Turn on your speakerphone so everyone can hear AVR or go about your daily routine while you listen online or on the phone. We're also on KU Band Satellite and on many FM stations, so look for us there, too. Go to theamericanvoice.com for more details. And while you're there, check out our news page for the latest alternative news. Ladies and gentlemen, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger 
that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit to the extent that it's in my control. And no official of my administration, whether his rank is high or low, civilian or military, should interpret my words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news, to stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes, or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve to know. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed. No president should fear public scrutiny of his program, for from that scrutiny comes understanding, and from that understanding comes support or opposition, and both are necessary. I am not asking your newspapers to support an administration, but I am asking your help in the tremendous task of informing and alerting the American people, for I have complete confidence and the response and dedication of our citizens whenever they are fully informed. I not only could not stifle controversy among your readers, I welcome it. This administration intends to be candid about its errors. For as a wise man once said, an error doesn't become a mistake until you refuse to correct it. We intend to accept full responsibility for our errors, and we expect you to point them out when we miss them. Without debate, without criticism, no administration and no country can succeed, and no republic can survive. That is why the Athenian lawmaker Sola decreed it a crime for any citizen to shrink from controversy. And that is why our press was protected by the First Amendment, the only business in America specifically protected by the Constitution, not primarily to amuse and entertain, not to emphasize the trivial and the sentimental, not to simply give the public what it wants, but to inform, to arouse, to reflect, to state our dangers and our opportunities, to indicate our crises and our choices, to lead, mold, educate, and sometimes even anger public opinion. This means greater coverage and analysis of international news, for it is no longer far away and foreign, but close at hand and local. It means greater attention to improved understanding of the news, as well as improved transmission. And it means, finally, that government at all levels must meet its obligation 
to provide you with the fullest possible information outside the narrowest limits of national security. And so it is to the printing press, to the recorder of man's deeds, the keeper of his conscience, the courier of his news, that we look for strength and assistance. Your help, man will be what he was born to be, free and independent. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Melody Suderstrom, and you're listening to Financial Survival. I'm here with my co-host, Alfred Adams, to bring you our opinion and commentary on today's economic and political events for Tuesday, June 30th, 2015. Good afternoon, Al. Hi, Melody. Oh, another day. Yes. Headlines is Greece, and uh, we'll be talking briefly about that. And then we're going to move on to some. Oh other, no, we're not. We're going to move on to some other topics. No, this is. We're going to change the name of the program to Greece Survival. How to survive if Greece you live in Greece? Seven. Yeah. All right. That's what we're going to have here for news. All the Greece that is news might be news, could be news. The most often asked question today was, you can't believe that the world has fallen apart and gold managed a $4 up day, and now it's down today by 7.70 at 11.73.40. You have silver down $0.08 cents at 15.78. Platinum down 2 at 108.3, and palladium was up 6 at $676. USDX today was, of course, stronger. 0.56 at 95.47. Uh, 
crude oil popped back uh, still under 60, up 1.03 at 59.36. And the paper markets today, I still hear some wind in the microphone there, Al. But uh, the Dow was uh, up 22 points at 17,618. The NASDAQ was up 28 at 49.86. And the S&P up 5 at 2,063. The 10-year yield, 2.34%. Pressure on the euro at 1.11. And uh, European markets, uh, Germany continued to follow or to fall 1.25%. London was one5 Asian markets were up slightly. So uh, the fear index today, just to give it, it was lower. It was uh, like 9, and it popped up to 12. So still a lot of fear, a lot of uncertainty in the markets. Uh, everybody's unsure but what's going to happen to Greece. And uh, it's funny, Al, because I saw a little article on the referendum for Sunday, and there's this Greek guy. He says he was asked on Monday during a coffee break with co-workers to explain the 72-word question that Greeks must answer with a yes or a no vote in the, the referendum. He says, I had to give up. And he's a 46-year-old chief accountant at, uh, at, a, uh, at an Athens bakery chain. He says, who outside the banking sector knows what a debt sustainability analysis is, let alone can say if we should if it should be accepted. And uh, now you understand why all you hear is the both sides saying vote yes, vote no. And I guess you'll, because no one could figure out what it says. So uh, I just thought that was kind of... it's in Greek. It's in Greek, yes. In uh, Italian or Spanish or English or something like that, it would be comprehensible. But it's Greek to the Greeks. It certainly is. So Greek to the Greeks as well, so... So it certainly is. So uh, that's how that uh, referendum will um, be decided on. And what difference does it make? Mm, nobody knows. Isn't it after the fact anyway? Yeah, you would and, think. And be resurrected? Sure. I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I got an article here talking about Greece. Greece asks for third bailout and last-minute diplomatic push. And the, the Greeks are going back and saying, oh, please, please give us this deal. All right. And whatever's happening, I'm losing my respect for the Greek government. I, I didn't I liked what they were doing previously because they were calling a spade a spade. But now they're essentially coming back with a tin cup in hand and saying, please give us another handout. And one of the problems is that many officials don't trust Zipras and his government to make the austerity measures. He's coming back. Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll play nice now. Well, People are sitting back and saying, look, you Greeks, you play, you promised you're going to, we cut the the debt in half a couple of years ago, and you promised you'd make good on the balance. You haven't. Now you're making us more promises. And they're just, some of them are sitting back quite sensibly and just saying, look, you're not going to pay the bill. We know that. Right? I don't care what you promised to pay. You're not going to pay it. And you got to be crazy. They're for lenders to sit back, well, well, okay, okay, we're going to trust you one more time. This is like Charlie Brown and Lucy. She holds a football, and Charlie Brown tries to kick it every fall, and she pulls it away, and he falls on his butt. This is the same thing with the creditors and the debtors in the Greek situation. The debtors, the debtors are going to pull a football away. Um, 
Now, one of the reasons they're asking the IMF and ECB for more money is that Russia is not inclined or willing to deliver as much foreign aid as Greece had hoped. That's one of the clear implications here. They're saying, no, wait, wait, we, 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 we promise to play nice if you'll just give us some more money. That means they're not getting anything out of Russia or they're not getting what they'd hoped for. Right? If they might be getting something, but not as much as they'd hoped for. Um, Greek government and people are showing themselves to just be a bunch of parasites and welfare recipients who think they're entitled to another free lunch, another welfare check, and never have to work hard enough to pay their bills. The Greeks overplayed their hand. I don't criticize them for doing so, but I do criticize them for playing their creditors. That's what they've been doing, playing these creditors for, for, for a couple of years. And they've been playing the world as well. And now at the last minute, they're trying to play one more time. You know, Greece has been broke for years. It's bankrupt. It knows that it's been playing extend and pretend for years. And now, barring the unforeseen, the Greeks will have to stop playing. Now they're going to have to accept responsibility and pay the price, economic depression, that all bankrupts must finally pay. Greek people are going to have to learn that if you want something, you must actually work hard enough to earn it, that you can't spend your life just enjoying yourself based on yet another handout from the government, the IMF, the European Central Bank. If you're going to play the welfare game, you need to accept the fact that sooner or later you have to either earn enough to pay for your own free lunches or accept austerity and economic depression. All of the welfare schemes, early pensions and free lunches that the Greek people have voted for over the years are about to disappear. The Greeks are about to learn that they are personally responsible for their economic fate. They won't like the lesson. The pain will be substantial, but once they realize the only way out of their predicament is their own hard work, once they abandon reliance on the welfare government, they'll be all right. It'll take a few years, but they will mostly survive. In the meantime, Greece has played the fool. Now it will pay the fool's price, poverty. I could respect Greece if it accepted its fate with a certain amount of resignation and even some dignity. All right. It's like a hangover. You understand? You went out and got drunk last night, and you stayed out too long. You didn't get enough sleep. You're hungover today. All right. Suffer through it. You earned your hangover. All right? You may not enjoy it, but you can't get around it. you got to deal with it with a certain amount of and learn from it. Instead, Greece is back with their tin cup begging for more handouts. You know, this just inspires my contempt. They should just say, look, we're not paying the bill. We can't pay the bill, and we're going to make our lives as best we can. But no, they're back for another handout. I don't like it. And here's another one. This is from the BBC. The headline is Greece. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, and where is it any different? I mean, the, the world is all based on, on handouts to, 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 to the citizens. And it, again, it, it, to me, it's so also looking, it's there. almost like they're looking for leadership. They end up voting for the politician who's got the best pitch. And then the people, perhaps, are sort of, okay, where did that get us? So now this is, you know, coming back and agreed. You know, they, 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 want, they want it to be as was. They don't want to accept any changes, and I get all that. But there really isn't any leadership in any of these countries anymore. It's almost like these countries, I mean, who there's leads? There's not responsible leadership. There's no re- well, there's no leadership. 
Well, it's not responsible. They promised to lead, but their idea of leadership is promising a bigger, better free lunch for more people. Vote for me, and I'll see that you get something for nothing that you didn't earn. Yeah, but that Cipras came out. Cipras was, around the world. Cyprus was uh, voted in because he was going to stand up against these guys, and that's I why he got voted in. Yeah, no. So again, Where is so the he people are being so deceived by these politicians. They just hear a little bit of something that they want. They log on. Not any different. It's not just what it is here. Being deceived. You know, there's an old saying: you can't con an honest man. Right? All of these people that are in this deal, they're oh, they're going to lose their pensions. Oh, this is such a tragedy. They promised to pay us. All these pensions are excessive and unearned. The whole deal behind public public unions, all right, in this country and Greece and whatever, well, we work for the government, so we're entitled to make a bunch of money at the expense of the poor saps who actually work for a living. It's a hustle. It's a con. You can't sit back and say the government workers are the victims in this situation. They were hustling. They were conning. They expected to exploit the taxpayer. And now they've been put in a position where, oh, my gosh, the taxpayers don't have the money or won't produce it. Now, where is it going to come from? Well, let's borrow it from the ECB or the IMF or the Federal Reserve or somebody's got to make good on these government pensions. Just because they were irrational and overly generous, that doesn't change things. Somebody's got to make good. They're not going to make good. It's happening in this country. It's happening in, it's happening in Greece. It's going to happen in this country. Absolutely. Uh, and, it's, and it's no wonder that there isn't anything that is accomplished. The point, though, is that... The people who are going to lose on this are going to be exactly the people who bet that the government would always be able to extort enough money out of the American taxpayer to pay off whatever it promised to the government workers in terms of pensions. Their bet all along was we can count on government to strong arm the public. The poor saps that are going to get nothing but Social Security after working for 40 years or more. All right. They're going to have to pick off up more money to support the retired government workers who got retired early, uh, sometimes after 20 years in this country. And then we're going to support them for the rest of their lives at a pension that's not Social Security. No, 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 that's not good enough for government workers. They do so much, they're entitled to take home double what you can make off Social Security, or in some instances, maybe more. And they think that. It's a bunch of crap. And it's just wrong. And now we're going to deal with reality. And no one's going to like it. But we're going to deal with the idea that the lesson here is we don't, we can't spin prosperity out of thin air by some jackass in the Federal Reserve or in the White House adjusting, tinkering with economic, the levers of economic power. You can't make people prosperous by changing the rate of inflation. Or adjusting your, whether the dollar index is at 95 or 97 or 92. That doesn't make people more prosperous. You have to start focusing on productivity. We have to learn to become more productive. That means we have to learn, learn to work harder and smarter. And if we can't do that, we're going to go down the pipe. That's all. Very simple. If you can't produce enough to actually pay for your lunch, you are going to go hungry. Might not be right now, but you're going to go hungry. Get in the habit. You want welfare. You think you're entitled to it. I guarantee it will cripple you. 
What you need to do is find a way to survive without government subsidies. And if you can do that, fine. Now you're on the road back to productivity. We get productive, we can become prosperous. But the government says, no, no, just vote for me. And you can go play Ripple or you go drink Ripple and play a video game or watch Dancing with the Stars, and I will see to it that you have a free lunch every day, delivered per year to your home. And we'll just charge someone else. Somebody else is going to have to pay for your free lunch. And so far as we accept those promises, we are going to pay a price. Won't be immediate, but the price is going to have to be paid. And we've been accepting those promises. They've accepted them in Greece, and now they're they're coming back to haunt them. Um, we've been accepting them for 40 years in this country. And those promises are now coming home to roost. They're not here to the same degree that they are in Greece, but they're coming. They're bigger. They're better promises. And uh, they're coming back, they're coming home to roost, and when they get here, they're oh my gosh, I thought we were going to leave this debt to our children, our grandchildren. I never thought we'd actually wind up having to pay the debt ourselves. Why didn't someone warn me? I mean, it's really just, for me, it's unfortunate, it's sad, but it's not just the government's fault. I am critical of government on a regular basis. I am no friend of the government. But the truth of the matter is we're going into this mess because we the people have been willing to play the fool. You can't con an honest man. We wanted something for nothing, and the government said, well, sure, we'll give you something for nothing. A lot of us believed it. Well, guess what? What will happen is the government will prosper, and we will pay. Hmm. Hmm. Surprised you, didn't I? Yes. I had another minute to go before. The, I know. Quit I had another two out. minutes to go before the break, and you thought, "Oh, you'll keep talking." Nah, yeah, I know. That's not uh-huh. like. Well, Al, it is not like you to stop talking. Well, I do it every <laughs> once in a while to see if you're paying attention or not. You know. I was. Uh-huh. I was. But, well, uh, in any case, I mean, this is this is a fundamental lesson here. This is not what we're seeing in Greece. Is not simply a lesson on. I don't know, borrowing, right? Oh, no, insolvency, bankruptcy, inability to pay a debt. This is all ultimately about big government and a government that promises more than it can ever rationally hope to deliver. And we're going to see the same thing for the pension plans in Chicago and for cities that have filed for bankruptcy in California and around the country. Government has promised more than it'll ever deliver. And it gets away with that because we elect people who promise to give us something we haven't earned. And insofar as we support that, we're a bunch of parasites. All of us are guilty of it. None of us are immune from this. We say, hey, I want some free lunch. Count me in. I'm there. You know, I'm there for the free lunch. Well, fine. Watch and see how it works out. This nation is going to strangle on its free lunches before this is all over. We're going to choke on them. And nobody's going to like it, but the lesson is government is the problem. This is not just a situation about money. This is a situation about government making promises and people who are dumb enough to believe them. Let's take a break for some commercial announcements. I'm Alfred Addis here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival. We'll be right back. That means it's your turn, Frank, to turn on the commercial machine. 
Frank is pushing the buttons right now. Okay. He's trying to get the commercials going. Well, you know what? We, I do want to go over the, the market numbers here in just a little bit because uh, I was informed at the very beginning of the program that uh, uh, for the shortwave programs didn't have it. Uh, WWCR does have it now and WBCQ does have it now, so uh, there might be replays. So we will have to go over the uh, uh, numbers and... Um, uh, I'll go ahead and do that now since there seems to be a little bit of a computer problem. I'm assuming we're still being aired even though he's having yeah. a problem. But let's go overhead. Uh, gold today was down uh, 770 at 1173.40. Silver was down 8 at 15.78. Platinum was down $2 at 1083. And palladium was up 6 at 676. Dollars, And we'll go ahead and let me pull up the rest of the numbers here. We had the uh, USDX today. That was uh, uh, slightly higher, 0.56 at 95.47. Crude oil was up 103 at 59.36. And the paper markets today, the Dow was up 23 at 17,619. The S&P up 5 at 2,063. And the NASDAQ up. 28 at 49.86 and I guess we're ready to go to break right now or maybe not right now <laughs> or right now or right now uh-huh. okay well I can finish the uh, computer needs to be rebooted I, I guess let me go ahead Put and the get boots to, to the computer Somebody put the boots to the computer. The 10-year yield today was uh, 2.34%. Uh, you have the euro at 112. That's beginning to turn around a little bit. It was 111 earlier in the day, uh, but still down uh, overall. European markets uh, up slightly. Germany was down one and a quarter percent. London was down about one and a half percent. And um, so the foreign markets seem to be hammered. The fear index today is trading anywhere between 9 and 12. Uh, currently, we're looking at extreme fear in the markets as far as the emotion that is driving the markets uh, if you play their little game and follow their little reports. But I find it interesting, and it's amazing that if there's that much fear in the markets, why would you have 23 points to the upside on the Dow, well, it doesn't even make sense. But uh, there isn't anything that makes sense in these None markets of it makes sense. when they're, they're rigged together. I understand. When they're rigged, they're, and you try to find a little bit of uh, logic or a common denominator, and uh, uh, they fail to uh, materialize. And what's that indicate? <sighs> they're losing control. All right, that's the real implication. From my perspective, you know, it's one thing to, if you're rigging the market properly, nobody even knows it's happening. The sheep get sheared and they don't even notice that the wool is gone. All right? When you start rigging the market in a way that is obvious, apparent, incoherent, disoriented, I don't know. All right? What's it indicate? It indicates that they are now in a desperate mode. And they're just, try this, try this. No, over here, adjust this price. No, this one, up, down, whatever. It's not even coherent, right? When the rigging isn't coherent, to me it indicates that we are, we are in or near the end of a serious 
you know, uh, we are approaching a serious problem. Um, what else have we got? Here's one. That, here's one. While we are waiting for Frank to reboot, and he will notify us when the reboot is continues. Let me just. I'm going to change the subject here. This, this can't be in in Oklahoma. This is from KOCO.com, Oklahoma City. Uh, this came out about a little over an hour ago. Yeah. And you know, a Ten Commandments monument on the Oklahoma Capitol grounds, and is going to be removed uh, because it violates the state's constitutional ban on using public prop property to benefit a religion. And that's what the Oklahoma Supreme Court ruled today. I think you're going to see so many of these rulings come across this country. You're going to see any sign of any cross, any <laughs> Ten Commandments, anything, just gets overrun and put away. Okay, but what about the Supreme Court? It's so my understanding they've got a copy of the Ten Commandments in the Supreme Court. Of the, now, of course, the Supreme Court's not operating under the Oklahoma Constitution, but just the same. You know, I wonder how far they're going to push this. And is this a good thing or a bad thing? From the perspective of the Christian churches, is this good or bad? Melody? And your answer? My answer is we don't know yet. But it may be like gun control. Every time Obama goes out and tries to advance gun control, the gun makers sell another million guns. He has been one of the, he has been probably the most, the single most effective salesman for guns in, in, that we've ever seen in this country. I'm wondering if something like that might not take place with this attempt to suppress the Ten Commandments and evidence of the Christian faith in this country. I. It may be that it just blows up on them, and it uh, maybe in the end it really does attract. Maybe it attracts more people than it offends. You know, I mean, by offending people, I won't say it attracts more than it offends. It, by offending people, it may actually enhance some people's faith. Maybe a lot of people's faith. Maybe a lot of people will, some, maybe some people will start looking at this and say, wait a second, what's really going on here? Maybe they need a constitutional amendment in Oklahoma to delete that section from the uh, from their constitution. Some people will talk about it. I'm not making that recommendation, but some people will talk about it. But it remains to be seen how this will shake out. And just because the government, you know, the Soviet Union tried to suppress the Christian faith. The Soviet Union is gone. And, and and Putin actually extols the Christian faith at least at times. Right? Times change and the faith survives. And even though the government would try to break it down, there's still, you know, maybe not, maybe not. Got to weigh the power of government against the power of the Christian faith. Let's see. Let's see who really wins this arm wrestling contest. Huh? Let's take a break. Frank, I believe, is now. He says he's ready when we are. We're ready. I'm Alfred Addis here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival. We'll be back in a moment. Please stay tuned.
aspirin mistake. Aspirin was discovered by mistake during World War II and suppresses your immune system and prevents blood clotting. Don't expose your body to risk when you can use a natural inflammation and pain reliever called Extra Strength Pain Relief by Apothecary Herbs. Discover the power this formula has with Salicin to enter the system in 60 seconds to work hard and relieve pain for 12 hours. Whether it's arthritis, sports injury, or flu, you can relieve aches, pain, and swelling with our Extra Strength Pain Relief Formula. Call Apothecary Herbs now, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. Are you concerned about prescription drug dependency to stay healthy? Are you worried that the cost and availability of your medications may put your health at risk? Perhaps it's time you consider a natural, safe, and effective way to deal with your health problems. If only you knew where to start. Start right here. Tune in to Herb Talk Live with herbalist Wendy Wilson every Tuesday and Thursday evening, 7 p.m. on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, where your health care options just became endless. I'm Alfred Addis here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival. What's next, Melody? Well, we have a special today, 90% silver. We have $100 face value of the uh, bags, uh, coins of our choice. They could be quarters, dimes, or 50-cent pieces. It could be a mixture. Uh, $100 face value. This price includes shipping costs. And your total package is twelve hundred and seventy five dollars. That's one eight hundred three seven five four one eight eight. That's ninety percent silver, a hundred dollars face value, uh, seventy one and a half ounces of silver for twelve hundred and seventy five dollars. They can call us at one eight hundred three seven five four one eight eight. We do have a limited supply of those, so give us a call. And uh, make sure you visit our website at dgscoins.com, dgscoins.com. Make sure you sign up for our weekly newsletter. And, of course, you can listen to these programs archived on a daily basis. What's next, Val? 
Got an article from this. Uh, I think many of you have seen it, but we'll talk about it just briefly. Uh, this is from the Associated Press from yesterday. Puerto Rico governor says island can't pay its public debt. Mm-hmm. All right. Following emulating the Greek example. The governor of Puerto Rico warned that Puerto Rico can't pay its $72 billion public debt as international economists released a critical report Monday on the island's economy. The news from Governor Alejandro Garcia Padilla delivered another jolt to the recession-gripped U.S. island, as well as a world financial system already worrying about Greece's collapsing finances. The governor hopes to defer debt payments while negotiating with creditors. There is no other option. I would love to have an easier option. This is not politics. This is math. Garcia is quoted as saying in the Times, which is just another way of saying what can't be paid won't be paid. And it all goes to this idea that government can make all of these irrational promises and nobody needs to be responsible, and no one can need to ever say, no, you can't have more entitlements or more subsidies or more, more, more. The government is going to be all things to all people. And in the process, the government only, in the end, it discredits itself. Puerto Rico can't pay all of its promises. Right? Neither can the United States, although that, that problem is not yet abundantly apparent we can see it coming but it's not apparent in the same way that puerto rico can't exactly pay its debts the united states can fake its way through we have certain advantages we can get by in ways that greece can't but we won't be able to do it forever that's all puerto rico is just another casualty another one of these instances where you know the world is going to see more and more difficulty. What have we got here? Uh, Here's another one from the Business Insider. Central bank chief who saw the 2008 crash coming takes back that whole next Great Depression thing, he said. That's the headline of it. Last week, Raghuram Rajan, India's rock star central bank government governor who is credited with foreseeing the 2008 financial crisis, said the world is currently facing Great Depression-era problems. Last week, he says, we got Great Depression problems. But now, the central bank is backtracking on those comments. In a statement, Reserve Bank of India General Manager Alpana Kilawala said the press mischaracterized Rajan's remarks. See? He didn't really mean that we were in or near a Great Depression. So pay no attention to the little man behind the curtain. Right. They went on. The bank says the Great Depression was a period of great turmoil caused by many factors and not just beggar thy neighbor policies. Governor Rajan did not imply or suggest that there was any risk of, to the world economy, uh, which is in a steady recovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're in a steady recovery. Notwithstanding, uh, notwithstanding uncertainties like those of the euro area slipping into a new Great Depression. There's no Great Depression coming. Don't worry about it. According to the local Indian media, Rajan warned a London Business School conference that in global collective effort to produce growth out of nowhere, we could be shifting growth from each other rather than creating growth. And this touches on, the, on an idea I talked about in the first segment of the program. 
the idea we have to get back to productivity. Rajan is right to criticize that we are facing a Great Depression-era type problem. We're in a world where politicians and economists believe they can spin money out of thin air to, one, provide an endless supply of free lunches to the people, and two, make their people increasingly dependent, and three, increase government powers dramatically. As long as government's handing out free money, baby, we're there. We believe in the government. We depend on the government. We love, worship, honor, and obey the government as long as it's handing out free money. But there's no such thing as free money. In the final analysis, somebody's got to pay. You know, you can't just keep... It's like if free money were a valid concept, each one of us should be entitled to write checks on our checking account of any any amount we want to write. Right? I want a new... um, I just saw where one of the boxers, I don't know, uh, Mayweather, bought himself a car $4.8 $4.8 million. Can you imagine a $4.8 million automobile? Right? Somebody's got to take the punches to pay for a $4.8 million automobile. Somebody's got to throw the punches. There is a price to be paid. We can't simply spin. I can say, get my checkbook. I want a $4.8 million automobile, too. And I don't ever have to make good on the check. That's what we're doing when we take this free, free lunch from government. There's, there's allegedly over $200 trillion in unfunded liabilities that are owed by the government right now. That's government promising, you get a free lunch and you get a free lunch. How about you, sir? Would you like a free lunch? Ma'am, would you like a free lunch? What would you like on your lunch? That's what government's been doing. There isn't going to be a free lunch. Someone has to grow the food. They have to pay to grow the food. And we have to pay them for the food if we want to eat it. And the government and economists sit back and say, oh, no, 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 vote for us. And we will manipulate the economy. We will adjust the inflation rate or the U.S. dollar index rate. And by manipulating these numbers, we can put a free lunch on your plate. Well, it's crazy. You understand? It is at best crazy. It is arguably criminal fraud. You're not entitled to a free lunch. None of us are entitled to a dime we haven't personally earned. And unless we get back to that, we aren't going to see any restoration of productivity. And this guy in the, the uh, this guy Rajan for the Central Bank of India. You know, he's right. He's complaining that we have to learn that prosperity is a function of personal productivity rather than political entitlements. And if we don't learn it, we're all headed for the same austerity and depression that's about to plague Greece. If the government won't cause or at least allow the American people to become more productive, then each of us must on our own force ourselves to work harder and become more productive. If you want to keep eating, you'd better find a way to pay for your own groceries. We need to focus on increasing individual productivity rather than increasing handouts and regulations through economic gimmicks and the accompanying regulations from government that are going to kill us all. 
somebody's got to go back to a free market and actually make some food, make some groceries, make some houses, and we got to we're going to have to actually pay for them. Not just borrow and go into debt deeper and deeper. We're going to have to pay for them. And when we get back to that, we will become productive. And when we become productive, we will become prosperous. But as long as we're a nation that believes in entitlements, we are a nation of parasites. Entitlements, subsidies, something for nothing. It's all parasites. Think you're entitled to it? Watch and see. And I guarantee you the people who are most adamant about their right to entitlements, right, are going to be the ones who will be most hurt when reality finally strikes and they find out, guess what? You're not going to get it. What can't be paid won't be paid. Melody, shall we take our, shall we take our second set of commercials now? I think so. All right, let's do it. Let's see if Frank, I told him, he said his computer had overheated. I suggested he throw some ice water on it. Let's see if the ice water has helped the computer to function or not. Apparently, the ice water has done the trick. Melody and I will be back on Financial Survival in just a moment. Please stay tuned. or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out? When life is too much to handle, use Apothecary Herbs Emotional Stress Formula. Feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope. Complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee. You've waited long enough. Call Apothecary Herbs now. Toll free 866-229-3663 That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3Ws.thepowerherbs.com. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Hi, folks. I'm Alfred Adams here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival. What's next, Melody? 
Well, there's a lot of discussions, and uh, we have Jade Helm as beginning July 15th, I guess, and uh, there are reports that the uh, FBI is setting up 56 command centers to monitor the 4th of July terror threat, where ISIS is to strike the West with lone wolf attacks. Uh, there was a map uh, release that is predicting where or predicts where they will strike, and um, they've, uh, sources told Fox News, the local, state, and federal law enforcement agencies in the U.S. will be reporting any information about possible attacks to these command centers where officials will decide how to respond. Um, it is a growing fear, particularly since you've had three back-to-back attacks, both in France or all in uh, France, uh, Kuwait, and Tunisia last Friday. Uh, the FBI says there has been no specific credible threat so far. It seems to be more active in its warnings and actions ahead of Independence this day this year than previously. I mean, if there was no specific credible threat, why would you sense, set up 56 field offices across the country ahead of this weekend? And most of the locations on this map is pretty much where you would expect Florida, Texas, you know, all along the borders. The only states uh, that doesn't have a little red mark in where the FBI will be, and this is where you should probably go in your fourth, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota. Doesn't look like Wyoming has uh, any command centers. Um, Pretty much every state does. Maine is missing one. Well, I think the implication there is if if you build a command center, they will come meaning the Muslims. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe you need to stay away from these command centers, and maybe they won't attract so many Muslims. Hmm? Um, let's see. This uh, There was a, a Mike McCall, chairman of the House Committee on Homeland Security, has also warned Americans to remain vigilant. Uh, he also said that ISIS was no longer a regionalized threat, but a global one. He says he's extremely concerned that Syrian and ISIS recruiters mm-hmm. can use them, and it goes on and on and on. So... Put an extra. So is put, it, put an extra is it live or is it Memorex? You know, it's like, oh extra, my gosh, the boogeyman is going to get you. Put an extra burger on the grill. Yeah, I understand that for your local Muslims. They may be coming in to bomb your grill party, your 4th of July party. So if you see anyone, you're having 4th of July, you're down at the beach or the park or whatever, and you see anyone approaching in a burqa, be vigilant. She might be packing explosives under the burqa. Um, I don't know. The whole thing, it does sound suspicious, especially in conjunction with Jade Helm. Um, Mm -hmm. The government seems to be setting up an awful lot of facilities to deal with terrorists, dissidents, military exercises. I don't know. And it's hard to know whether it's a triviality or it's something we should be genuinely concerned about. You know, but you got to wonder what the government's really thinking about. Has the government improved anything by setting up these 56 command centers? calling FBI offices. Don't we have FBI offices in Dallas and Chicago and pretty much in most of the places where these command centers are being set up? Don't we already have FBI offices that are at least fairly close 
Well, you would you have your local police forces. You also have your reserves. Oh. You have, you know, various other um, officials to. Um, you know, it's and what are they going to do? Are they just going to take reports, reports of bombings, reports of suspicious persons? What? You know, people flying Confederate flags. Boy, we got to keep an eye out for them. Yep. You know, uh, the whole thing just becomes, you know, you can't, on the one hand, you can't laugh about it exactly. On the other hand, you can't take it seriously. And when you look for causes, how did we get into this? Well, we invaded Iraq, didn't we? Twice. Right? We're back again. That's one thing. We've meddled in the Middle East for so long in order to keep our keep some control over the Middle East oil. We've meddled there to where we have alienated a lot of Muslims, people from the Middle East. I mean, to some extent, these 56 command centers, control centers, whatever they are for the, for the FBI, this is a consequence of Bush's invasion of, the, of Iraq. Right. This is a consequence of all our meddling over there. You know, there should be a situation where people just understand, in my opinion, you know, it's easy, easily said, and it's hard to do. You wind up getting, becoming entangled in these foreign relationships, and once you get into them, they create responsibilities that you, perhaps you never intended, but you wind up caught in that web just the same. And the lesson behind this is maybe you got to just learn to mind your own business. We'll, we'll live with the oil we've got in this country, and you people, the rest of you, live with the oil you got in your countries, and we will deliver, we will manufacture and deliver products in this country, and the rest of you do what you want to do. And you don't need to come bomb us. We're not going to meddle in your business. You know... It's one of the lessons that you can at least consider that's a result of our foreign policy for the last 40 years, really since World War II. And coming home, coming home at a time, and of course it's coming home at a time when we can't afford the problems. And why can't we? Because we've expended so much money with all of our meddling and now we're broke. And at the time we go broke, that's exactly the time when the adversaries, the people we've alienated and whatever, they say, ha-ha, we can get even with them now because they're broke and they can't afford to play the game. So, I don't know. You would wish that everyone could learn from these lessons. But history shows us that pretty much nobody will. No matter how this works out, if the Muslims didn't detonate bombs in this country, they don't detonate bombs in this country, we will still have a, company, a country where 40% or more of us are getting government handouts and subsidies. And 40% or more of us will insist on our right to keep getting free money from the government. And none of us will much care if that free money helps to strangle future generations or even wreck the country. We will take the money. You know, it's just smart. People say, hey, it's just smart. You've got to take the money. 
It's there. It's free. You're entitled. You know, it's like telling people you're entitled to free cocaine, free crack. It's there. Come on, snort a little crack. What the heck? It's free. Free. Well, do you know what isn't free? Hmm. Lobster rolls at McDonald's. Yeah, I know. It's a problem, all right. Lobster rolls. Let me find that article wherever I have it. Yeah, here it is. Fiscal <laughs> Times headline. McDonald's aims for a classier crowd with lobster rolls. As sales continue to fall, McDonald's is desperately trying to reinvent itself, and its latest effort seems to be aimed at a slightly classier crowd. And the key word there is slightly. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. The New England area McDonald's are going to start selling lobster rolls again after a 10-year hiatus. According to a report on Fox CT, no word yet on whether the old name McLobster will be revived. The new lobster roll is reportedly made from 100% North Atlantic lobster and includes mayonnaise, a bed of lettuce, a small toasted roll, and the meal has 290 calories and sells for $7.99. What was the old lobster roll made out of? <laughs> I, they, they didn't tell us. They're not giving us full disclosure on that, Melody. So and my question to you, Melody, is how'd you like to go out with me for a romantic lobster dinner? I'll take you to McDonald's. They're catering to a classier crowd so you can dress up and put on your high heels. I hear they'll soon have strolling minstrels, violin players, and candles on the tables to add that special McDonald's ambiance. In fact, what I see is an almost comical attempt to reverse McDonald's decline. It'll take more than lobsters to save Mickey D's. Without a radical restructuring, McDonald's may be headed for oblivion, which is hard to believe. I remember when McDonald's first started selling 19-cent hamburgers back in the 1950s. I remember one of the stores opened in our town in Illinois, my hometown in Illinois, and... Oh, boy, we couldn't hardly wait to get there. I mean, it's an event that still sticks in my mind 50 years or more ago. And we're going, ooh, we're going to McDonald's. We'd heard about it, and they finally opened up. And, uh, you know, we were all excited about it. And uh, I remember knowing people who made a fortune investing in McDonald's restaurants. In fact, I knew one guy in high school who was really... You know, I, I, I'm not going to say what he was over the over the air, but he was generally disliked, you know, unpopular, you know, just, just a jerk. But he and his dad bought a McDonald's. And this would be back probably about 1960, 62, something like that. And then they bought another one, another one. And he wound up one of the wealthiest people around. Um, McDonald's made him rich, but now the McDonald's franchises are suffering a decline. Some of them are growing broke. It doesn't seem possible. It also doesn't seem possible that McDonald's can reinvent reinvent itself by selling McLobsters. They tried it, and they abandoned these McLobster sandwiches over 10 years ago. If the McLobster didn't really work 10 years ago, what makes anyone think it'll work today? I'm only guessing. I have no evidence to support my guess, but if I had to guess, I'd guess that McDonald's probably began to slide about 10 years ago. I don't remember exactly when, but in my mind, it feels like about 10 years ago when it started advertising as Mickey D's. 
in an express attempt to attract more blacks to their stores. It's politically incorrect to say so, but you can pretty much bet that insofar as Mickey D's succeeded in attracting more blacks, they also succeeded in alienating some of the white population. I've heard one, uh, there were people back at the time that started calling McDonald's Black Donald's. If they alienated enough whites with their Mickey D's sales promotion, I'll bet that alienation goes a long way to explaining McDonald's current economic slump. They say it's politically incorrect, but it may be true. I don't know. The quality of the food, I mean, it is just deteriorated. And I mean, you can't blame that on who you bring into the stores, can you? No, I don't blame blame the quality of the food on anybody. I'm just saying when lost. I'm just saying reality is this. You say we're catering to black crowd. All right, cater to a black crowd. But don't expect to see many whites coming to join. Well, that's fine. I mean, then that's why there were so many. But, I, you know, it's, it's almost a sign of just like this country is how it's losing the, the quality. It's losing um, the, the, the ability to rule, the ability to, you know, be profitable, the ability to, for whatever reasons, whether it be the quality controls. I mean, you walk into some of these McDonald's and they're just downright filthy. And it doesn't matter what color's in there; it's filthy. And uh, you've seen the the chicken. Have you ever seen the picture of what they make the uh, the chicken the McNuggets out of? Some kind of a pink blob. Oh my gosh! You're you're just. I was just going to have some McNuggets for lunch, Melody, and now you've wrecked it for that. me. That and the competition. They had no competition, and they didn't keep up with the competition. Yeah, I think that's they were. They need a radical restructuring. I don't think McLobsters are going to be enough to achieve it. we got to go, Melody, as we're out of time. Uh, I want to thank all of you for listening. We will be back tomorrow. In the meantime, the good Lord bless you, me, Melody, and Frank, the producer. Bye-bye.
Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. obligations or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out when life is too much to handle use apothecary herbs emotional stress formula feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee you've waited long enough call apothecary herbs now toll free 866-229-3663 That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the3ws.thepowerherbs.com. We are broadcasting live from the Flint Hills of Kansas, and we're on the American Voice Radio Network. Today's date is June 25th, 2015. 
Since the world is in turmoil, most just don't realize it, but we are in that time of the end, and that's the time before Messiah's glorious return. So it's time to get out of sin, the world, and look to the holy city. Look to the one who suffered and died for you. Please make this choice tonight. If you need help after this program, call me. I'll pray for you or with you. If you get the machine, please leave your name, your number, your prayer request, and or message. The phone number, of course, is 620-878-4682. 620-878-4682. In an emergency, my cell phone number is 316-619-4886. You can always find updates of the breaking news, our ministry, radio program archives, and our mailing address, which is at our blog, which is very simply prophecyhour.com. That's prophecyhour.com. Of course, if you just put the www dot in front of it, you'll go right to it. Anyway, we are a national satellite program, which is also simulcast live on the net, so that makes us international. And we do have a lot of listeners from all around the world because we know that after we put these live programs into a podcast later on tonight, we've got a map. Uh, that tells us where people download these across the world, and they do pick us up across the very world. Anyway, our program archives can be found at prophecyhour.com and branch.pyromatic.com. But if you go to prophecyhour.com, there's just an icon that says uh, In Time Radio Archives. Click on that. It'll take you to the other site. Both are smartphone-friendly, and the the branch.pyromatic.com has a a place where you can get an Android app or an Apple app, you know what I mean, and uh, you can get that, put it on your cell phone. But you do, or smartphone, I guess they're called nowadays. I don't have one. I use a flip phone. But um, you can get those apps and put them on your uh, smartphone. But you can also listen to them, download them, hit play, whatever. You can do all that without downloading any app at all. And so uh, we're also looking for some people who know how to work on websites. Uh, Somebody told me it's time that we should expand some things. And, uh, well, you know, I guess we could tweak a little things a little. After all, we've only been on the air since radio since 2001. And we started our, we were one of the first to place radio archives on the net starting about 2003 or 2004. So pray about it. If you'd like to help out, maybe volunteer or give me some pointers, let me know. Now a prayer, and we'll bring on tonight's guest. Dear Heavenly Father, in Yeshua HaMashiach's name, I pray. Father, I pray that ready tonight goes according to your will and not mine. And please give everyone out their ears in which to hear the truth. So please, Father, in your son's mighty name, bless this program tonight. Yeshua HaMashiach, amen and amen. Well, Jan Markle is our guest tonight. She is the founder and director of Olive Tree Ministries. She is the author of eight books and many DVDs. She's on almost 700 radio stations. A Jewish believer in Yeshua, she has been Jewish. She has been doing Jewish or Messianic work for 38 years. She's a co-writer of Anita Dickman's book *Trapped in Hitler's Hell*, now, which is now released by WorldNet Daily Books. And folks, uh, most of you um, have been listening to me for a while. Know that we did interview Anita Dickman, and, and she is just a fascinating lady. Jan is a Holocaust scholar, as well as an expert on end times, and a very pro- proactive in talking about the rise 
of globally of the new anti-Israeli or anti-Semitism that's out there right now. And we have been following that as we just talked recently with Joel Richardson um, about his new book, which uh, is entitled When a Jew Rules the World, and we talked about that. Anyway, tonight, though, we're going to talk to her about her new DVD and whatever else she wants to talk about. But the new DVD is entitled, When Government Becomes God, What History Teaches Us. So let's now welcome Jan Markle. Are you there with me, Jan? Yep. Thank you, Dan. It's Markel, by the way. Oh, Markel. Well, I apologize. Uh, I'm real bad on names. Anyway. That's all right. (laughs) That's okay. Um, yeah, I didn't really realize till yesterday that you were the co-author author with Anita Dickman on Trapped in Hitler's Hell. Right. I wrote the book in uh, 1979 with Anita. It, uh, I wrote it for Tyndale House. It uh, went into other publishing hands um, in the 1990s and then uh, went into the hands of WorldNet Daily a year and a half ago or so. And they updated the book and made a documentary, and now they're going to make a made-for-theater version by 2017. Really? A made-for-theater version? Um, is that yes. going to be produced uh-huh. by WND2? Yes, George Escobar. They're uh, trying to raise $10 million and uh, get it into theaters. It will have a gospel salvation message. They are uh, trying to skirt Hollywood. They don't really want any Hollywood involvement, but that means... But they've got to raise the funds themselves and get the actors themselves and, and just uh, stay away from the trappings of Hollywood, which um, uh, Hollywood would put dictates on how they could uh, have the movie structured and all. So they're trying to avoid that. Right, right. Well, that'll be a real blessing. I know I I... I, I read the book, of course, and I interviewed her, and it was just dynamite. Yeah. Uh, so that's a story that everybody needs to hear because it is a great story of faith. Um, this year, I guess tonight, um, I would suggest it was suggested to me to have you on because you made a new DVD called "When Government Becomes God." Now I looked at the trailer and I was really impressed. Well, here's what happened um, when uh, Wilna Daly uh, made the film for Anita Dittman, um, which was a year and a half ago now, I felt that something was missing, and that would have been uh, the the comparisons between Nazi Germany and America today, because uh, Nazi Germany let government become God in the 30s and 40s, and we all know what happened, and America starting in about 2008, decided they would let um, government, and, and more specifically Barack Obama, at least part part of America, not everyone, um, thought that government or Barack Obama could almost become God, hope and change. Uh, there were haunting comparisons between the hope and change that was being offered and the hope and change that was offered in Nazi Germany. And if I could just give a minute of a background as to how it happened in Nazi Germany, I think folks will connect the dots themselves. Um, because in the uh, in the uh, 1920s, the glory days of Germany were destroyed by World War One, And the only way the Germans felt they could get the glory days back 
would be to let Adolf Hitler come to power in the 1930s and listen to all the hope and change that he promised for the for the nation. He promised to make them the world's superpower again. Uh, but there were tremendous trade-offs that he would demand um, for the hope and change that he was promising. And the Germans were willing to go along with that because they wanted those glory days back so badly. And, you know, we can go into what those trade-offs were, but then, then we bring it up to modern time, and Americans today are, some anyway, certainly those on the left, are willing to make tremendous trade-offs so yeah. that, uh, you know, they can have some glory days here in America. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm looking at right now the, on your website, there was a partial list of comparisons from Germany yeah. to 1938-2014. Um, I don't know if you have that in front of you or if you can I go do. into that. that. That's just dynamite. Yeah. Go ahead and give it to the people. Yeah, well, I mean, um, back in the uh, let, let's let's just take 1938 and and bring it up to present time in America. And back then, back in 1938, um, there was a demise of capitalism, and that was fine uh, with people. And the rise of socialism was accepted. Um, another point: few blinked when prayer was taken out of school in 1935. Um, another point, daycare raised the children of Germany in the 1930s and 40s. Then again, uh, Christmas and Easter were taken out of uh, German public schools. Another bullet point would be socialized medicine came into the German uh, system, and uh, German health care was absolutely ruined. The elderly and the handicapped were marginalized. Uh, that's going to go on overdrive, by the way, in America. And again, the Supreme Court decision here very recently um, has ensured, you know, unless there can be a turnaround in 2016 in that election that's going to happen here. Um, abortion became the new normal in Nazi Germany. It was uh, even expected. Another issue was uh, private education was gone by 1938. Um, another issue, government spending skyrocketed, and no one said a word. Taxation soared to 80%. I heard uh, Bernie Sanders say the other day that taxation uh, of Americans needs to be 90%, and he got a yeah. standing ovation. So, you know, here here we go again. We're just following in the footsteps of Nazi Germany. Another issue, there was first there was gun registration, but that was quickly followed by gun confiscation. I assure you that's going to come to America very soon. Yeah. Free speech gradually faded. The newspapers and other media proclaimed the pro-government side of the story. Green agenda was adopted in Nazi Germany. Um, that's quickly becoming the, 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 the path to follow here in America. Government spying went off the charts. Children sang songs of praise to Hitler, just as they have to Barack Obama. Um, Germans were spellbound by his oratory skills. Uh, the church in uh, Nazi Germany didn't want to make any waves. It did not want to tackle any controversy, and pulpits would never address serious issues or politics. I could go on and on and on about the church in Nazi Germany and how it compares yeah. to the church today. And and I think you get the picture that um, uh, that there were tremendous. Uh, the key word is trade-off. There were trade-offs in Nazi Germany, but here's the key: the people were fine with the trade-offs because 
They wanted government to become God. They didn't want God to become God or to be God. They wanted government to become God and to be God. And more and more and more in America, um, many people within this country now want government to be their God. Yeah, absolutely. That list is chilling because every one of those that you, and I shouldn't laugh, but every one of those that you read are either have already came about or in the process of coming about. And, you know, it, it really uh, sets my, the, the hairs on my arms up. Yeah. up. I mean, it, it's just uncanny that it's going. So do you see that, um, do you think there's any hope left? I mean, you know, we've come a long ways in, in what, uh, the last eight, since 2008 down this path. Do you think mm-hmm. that we're willing enough to change it? Change? Um, can we Just change this? Pet, this? Yeah, stop it. Well, um, I personally, of course, I, I run a, I run a nonprofit ministry, but I'm not a prophet. I, I certainly don't know what what lies ahead. I, I, my hunch is it's too late. My hunch is that, uh, of course, God is a merciful God, and as we cry out to Him, and as the as the church cries out to Him to uh, change the course of America. Um, I believe he listens to our prayers and sees the earnestness of our prayers and perhaps can act. Um, But I believe in the coming days the Supreme Court is going to rule that uh, gay marriage is the law of the land. And I believe that that's probably going to be the final coffin in the nail of America. I really do think that that's what's going to happen. Um, We certainly don't know how the 2016 election is going to turn out, but more and more, um, I'm not seeing conservatives other than the really true hardcore conservatives rise up and fight this agenda all that strongly. I see so many of them caving to it here again in the recent trade agreements that were so, are, are so destructive and are leading to global government. So I'm not very optimistic. I'd like to be, but I think realistically, I wonder if global government isn't just over the fence, uh, right over the horizon, and it's coming faster than we can possibly imagine. Well, um, I I totally agree with you. You know, like uh, to use a phrase that our producer uses. He says America is so far stuck in the mud, we'll never get out. And yeah. I, I believe that. I, I don't. But here's where I see the problem. Um, you know, there, we still in America um, profess to be there's more Christians in America than there is any place else. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But they don't seem to have a voice. What do you think? Well, um our voice is marginalized. Our voice is is scoffed at and mocked. And um, that doesn't mean we don't have a voice. It's just so many won't listen to our voice. Um, I think we've got some excellent organizations that are trying to be a voice from Family Research Council to American Family Association and many, many others. Um, My ministry tries to be a voice, and we've got some uh, strong uh, web ministries that I think are trying to be a voice. I could name a lot of them. Many of them, World Net Daily is trying to be a voice. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm part of part of that outreach uh, through uh, the Dittman products. But so I, I think I think the greater question is um, I think we have a voice. I think the question is is how many are listening, 
And I think that the emails that stream into my ministry, and if I could give my website, I'd appreciate it. And oh, yeah, I think, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, sure. It's, it's, the ministry is Olive Tree Ministries, Olive Tree Ministries, but the website is olivetreeviews.org, uh, views as in viewpoint. But the, the, the emails that stream um, into this ministry is that people feel so alone because they don't have even family members or friends or coworkers that are in very much um, agreement with them because um, nobody's keeping up with the times. It's the days of Noah. The Bible predicted that the days of Noah would would uh, be repeated in a last generation, and I believe we're that last generation before Christ's return. Yeah, um, and that yeah, and that during that last generation. Uh, people would tune out. They'd uh, be focusing on eating, drinking, and having a good time. And that's that's what 95% of the church is doing. And that's what the nature of the emails coming into the, this ministry tell me. Almost every email that's talking about our times, they say, I'm so alone. I have no one to talk to. I have no one in my church to talk to. I don't even have anybody in my family to talk to. Um, because everyone is checked out and tuned out. So I think that the voices are out there, um, perhaps they're lone wolves crying in the wilderness, but very few are listening. Yeah. Um, actually, I get the, you know, uh, I've been on radio a very long time, Warren, of the time of the end. I believe we are in that time of the end, and I say that the first ever program. Um, mm-hmm. I believe that's where we're at. I believe world government is just is a blink yeah. of an eye away. Um, as far as the voice goes, I, I think there's a lot of voices out there, but I'm exactly like you. They're just falling, I guess, falling on deaf ears, or they're just not listening, period. Because, you know, I, it's like this. Here's an example. There's a fellow that, that I run into at the gym occasionally, and I told him eight years ago, um, roughly about eight years ago, I told him about Obama and what, or in 2008, 2009, what to expect out of him and everything. And, you know, he just he ignored me. Now, all mm-hmm. of a sudden, he's got a great interest, and he's saying, well, all these things about him. And I said, these are the same things that we told you that was yeah. going to happen if he, yeah. became pre- if he became president. You, why didn't you listen to me and vote a different direction? But that's America. That's the face of America. Well, some people are tremendously uninformed, and... Um, <laughs> You know, I, I don't want to get into low information voter issues, but some are just tremendously uninformed. I mean, they're not listening to your program. They're not listening to Understanding the Times Radio. They're not listening to uh, uh, some of the conservative voices that are out there. So um, that doesn't mean we should give up. I think we just need to keep going. I mean, I started in 2001 in radio. I started uh, small. I started on one station in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. And over time, branched out to 700. I mean, it was an uphill climb all the way. Of course, a financial climb as well. But, but um, I just tried to keep um, giving the message of the truth, whatever the topic might be. And I found, and I put a word in front of me, and I, I think you'll identify with this. I put a word in front of me, and that word was remnant. And as long as I focused on the word, there is a remnant out there who's hungry and thirsty, and they do want the truth, and they do want to stay informed, and let's direct our message to the remnant, whether it's a hundred, a thousand, or a million, we don't know. I mean, we don't know around the world, it's probably many million, many millions, 
Um, but it's not the masses. And can we accept the fact that we may never reach the masses because um, that's just not the way it's going to be in the last days? Yeah, that's very profound. But you're right. Um, that was something uh, uh, I started also in, in radio in 2001 with shortwave, and and then I found mm-hmm. American Voice Radio, and and instead of going on a different lot stations, you know, we we consistently since 2003 or 2004 podcast our things, and was one of the first people that did podcasting on you know the mm-hmm. internet. And so, you know, we do have a large group of people that listened from all over the world. At least with that age, we can see where people are listening to us at. But um, you're right. You know, we we had to to take that in stride and 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 do that. Keep our focus and stay focused. I think that our voice is going to be much more needed here in the future, Jan. Um, tell us a little bit about where your website is again and where it's at, and then we'll come back and talk after we take a station break. Sure. Um, the ministry is Olive Tree Ministries, and they can find me at Olive Tree Views, V I E W S, Olive Tree Views dot org. And uh, we got uh, headlines and hundreds and hundreds of articles, and I got five years of radio programming posted there at Radio Archives. So I'd love to talk to your folks and uh, be happy to answer any questions. Well, folks. Um Absolutely. Go over and check our website out. And if you folks uh, are not list- or listening to live, if this you're listening when we did this in podcast, then wherever you found us in podcast, there will be a link to the Olive Tree Ministries. Uh, absolutely. So all you'll have to do is click on it to find her site. Um, be sure and check her out. She has a lot of great things and like one, some videos. I really watched, I watched a video over there today about um, the the end of America. And that is a real opening video she has. So tune in, folks. We'll be back in three minutes. Dan will be right back. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. condition and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kit. Five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, 
relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom Food prices going up, homes being foreclosed, unemployment insurance running out, jobs leaving the country. Many people cannot afford to eat or keep a roof over their head. Too many can do neither. Messiah's Branch has a mission church in Wichita, Kansas that helps the victims of this banker's economy, the American people. Your neighbors, the mission is the last hope for so many Americans. We need your help to lift up the poorest of the poor. These are men, women, and children who once had homes, now in the street. They all need what you need. First aid, beds, food, clothing, and so on. You can send a monetary gift or a box of necessities to 230 West 4th Street, Florence, Kansas. Donate online by going to wichitahomeless.com or simply call 
Um, I was in Oklahoma on the way here, and I was told by several people that the one place that I had to come to was here because this was a good place, and you were a good man. Well, nobody's good. Nobody. Uh, only the father is good. But point is, is people heard about us from a long ways away because we've helped, and we've consistently helped over and over and over. I can't tell you how many people that I put back together that came in beat up and broken or that needed cold medicine and so on and so forth, but it isn't me that does these things. It's actually you folks out there that are supporting us so that we can do this. We're just a catalyst so that we can give things to the people from the father. You know, I told the father when I came out of the world, I said, you know, it's like this. Just, I am so thankful for being saved that if you would just give me a broom, I'll sweep up the kingdom of heaven. And so I said I would do anything. You know, Yeshua spent his time among the sinners and among the poor and healing people and doing things. And we try to you know, we, we try to be Christian. That means Christ-like, Messianic, Messiah-like. That's what we try to do. So we don't have any set guidelines for people. People walk in the door and we give them relationships. That's what we give them. And perfectly, that relationship will lead them to Yeshua. This is why even the agencies tell their employees about the Father's Little Mission Church. You see, when guidelines stop them from helping, they send people to us. People who have millions of dollars in their budget send people to a place that really has no budget. We are the very last hope for so many. And folks, we are responsible to care one for another, as we are brothers keepers. All donations, no matter what size, helps. And the Father notices all donations that come from where? Your heart. You can donate online or by mailing a, a check or m money order, or you can find this information at prophecyhour.com. That's prophecyhour.com. And we Excuse me. Uh, you can call me at 620-878-4682. And now we're back with Jan from Olive Tree Ministries. Are you still with me, Jan? Sure am. Mm -hmm. Well, amen. Just uh, as reflection as we go back into this, um, real quickly, um, tell them uh, your name and your web address again real quick so uh, maybe people just tuned into us and they'll know who we're sure. talking about. Yeah, well, Jen Markell here, Olive Tree Ministries, and uh, I uh, that's Olive Tree Views, views as in viewpoint, olivetreeviews.org, and if they're unfamiliar with the radio, it's Understanding the Times Radio, and we're on about 700 radio stations across the country, and we try to uh, focus on current events from a biblical perspective. I uh, focus very often on end-time events and connect them to how exactly what the Bible uh, was predicting for the end of days. Um, and I take a pretty traditional uh, dispensational position on, uh, on the end-time uh, theology. Right. Well, um, I notice in your, your thing, so you're, you're a Jewish believer in, in Yeshua, right? Yes, as is uh, Anita Dittman, of course, and um, we yeah, came together in about 1978 and began writing uh, Trapped in Hitler's Hell here in the Minneapolis area. Um, the Twin Cities pastor had met her and, and realized she really needed a story about her life, and we got together, and I concurred, so um took about a year to write it. Uh, back in the late 70s, didn't have computers to do all the research, so I did it through uh, books at the library and all, and that book came out in about 1980 for Tyndale House. So um, I've been uh, wrote eight books after that. Yeah, amen. Um, so what I want to, uh, you know, take people into: How can you express 
you've been on radio all this time, and I'm, I'm sure you do wonderful programs. I know I'm going to have to go check them out, but I'm curious. How would you best relate to people right now that are listening that we are in the end times and maybe something that you could tell them that, you know, maybe where we're at in it or or just, uh, you know what I mean? Well, yeah, the end times are Mideast-centric. Um, they're not really America-centric. Um, uh, they're more European and Mideast-centric. I think Russia is going to play a heavy role. Uh, based on what the Bible says, Ezekiel 38-39, um, the kings of the East are going to play a, a big role just where America is. I think that's the big mystery, but I think that America is going to just eventually, and maybe sooner rather than later, uh, blend into the one world system, and that's why we see America collapsing. But but the focus of the middle of the focus of the end times is the Middle East, and um, and I think another there are so many signs of the last days. I mean, dozens and dozens of them. But I think another couple of very significant ones would be the persecution of Christians and the rise of anti-Semitism. Um, and I don't have to go into a whole lot of detail. I don't think. I hope your listeners are aware that. Um, uh, you know, we we have <laughs> what gets to me. What gets to me, Dan, is we we have a catastrophe going on in the Middle East of a scale which is almost unthinkable. I mean, we have children being crucified, and yet here in America, we're obsessing over a Confederate flag. I mean, it's just laughable that we start majoring in minors here in America uh, when the, the, the Middle East is imploding at the expense of hundreds of thousands, millions of lives are at risk in the Middle East. And, and that's heavily because of the failure of American foreign policy and the failure of this current administration, which is an abomination. That's all I can right. say. It's beyond tragic. It is an abomination that they have abandoned those that are being slaughtered, crucified, every imaginable torture being implemented on innocent people in the Middle East. And this administration, and sadly, too many people in the pews and too many in the pulpits, are not paying attention or either or don't care or simply are too in, involved in having a good time in life to keep <laughs> track of exactly what's going on in that part of the world. It is not just the Middle East. It's North Korea. It's China. It's, it's Africa, the, all parts of Africa. It's under Boko Haram. It's under Al-Qaeda. It's under ISIS. It's under, it's under the communists. It's, it's shocking. It's stunning. And it's horrifying. And Americans are asleep with this tragedy. And the other concern that's, that's growing is this rising tide of anti-Semitism, which is, is almost equally shocking. It just hasn't gotten as brutal, but it certainly could, which will eventually drive all the Jews back to Israel, which could be happening here in the next year or two, I think. Yeah, absolutely. A couple of things on, on what you said. Um, as far as, uh, uh, you know, that's one thing, what you just talked about, you know, the Bible is Middle East-centered, period. You know what I mean? A lot of people read it yes. like it's a... Yes. Uh, yeah, they read it like, here's how I describe it. I tell, you, I tell people, I said, what you're doing is you're taking a book about... Indians, and you're reading it from a cowboy point of view without even knowing anything about the Indians, 
and trying to to change it and and they do that so they don't get it and that's when one of the artifacts on my program you find some place in the program when i talk to somebody just for my own curiosity is how people feel about the people that are being slaughtered overseas and and uh, those are end time martyrs you know it talks about them in yes. the bible that's right. going on right now and you talk to these so-called some of these people that have written great books and things and you know they act like it's meaningless they go on totally uh, about it and so they just don't get it and i go how can they be so blind you know they're being slaughtered in front of their faces and they're doing nothing and it's I know. right there in front of them it really makes well, me want to cry go ahead yeah me too, Dan. Um, and and I, I do. I shed literal tears over all this and, and, and the apathy of, of certainly some, not all, but the apathy of the American people and American pulpits, um, again, because they're majoring in other things. And, and too many of our churches um, feel good and seeker sensitive and don't make our people uncomfortable. So let's not talk about the uh, horrific things that are going on in various parts of the world. So, um I get pretty down on the church sometime. I, I know there are some that are holding to truth, but I'd like to see a whole lot more. But I think if you want to talk about about end-time markers, then I think the other one would have to be the great apostasy in the church today. And that's uh, something else that I cover extensively in my ministry and on air. And uh, my upcoming program this weekend is with Carol Matriciana, and we're dealing with her film. Excuse me, I gotta just take a drink. Hang on. Go right ahead. Uh, her, uh, yeah, we're dealing this weekend with her film, uh, Wide Is the Gate, Volume Three, and again, five hours of shocking, shocking film footage of the raging apostasy in our churches today. And I, I don't just mean a little bit of false teaching. I mean the um, rise of the doctrine of demons. Uh, now, that's not necessarily at the First Baptist Church down the street, but, but in a lot of our churches, um, and particularly the hyper, hyper-charismatic churches that are allowing some of the um, unbalanced signs and wonders to be taking place. And so we try to expose them. Uh, this weekend on my program, Understanding the Times Radio. Again, they can go to olivetreeviews.org to learn more about Understanding the Times Radio. Yeah, amen. Uh, I t- yeah, for sure, people, you need to tune into that. Well, um, you've got me hooked. Now I'd like to hear what you, uh, some of the apostasies that you do see in the church, if you, well, if you will. Sure. Just let me, um, I'm just writing about it here, and I'm just going to, if you'll just give me a moment, I'm um, pulling up what I just wrote today because I was writing about the exact thing we're talking about. Just give my computer about 10 seconds here and I'll... Oh, that's in fine. Front of me. I don't have any problem with that at all. You know, just, <laughs> it's just, I did it myself. We're on live radio, but I love live radio for that factor. But, you know, uh, that is one of the things. I've had a, a couple of fellows come over from organizations that went to the Middle East and, you know, yeah. saw all the things and came back and then came on our program and, you know, were just in tears because the pastors wouldn't let them in the church to tell their stories. And that is really 
just uh, yeah, obscene. Yeah, I have one old uh, gentleman. They got him out of retirement. He is seventy some years old, and he went over to represent um, one of the ministries over there. And and he came back, and he was. I was the first program that he hit after he got back, and he was telling me about the churches that have been turned down over and over and over. They didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear it. And that was just at the beginning of this Arab Spring thing, whatever you want to call it, which I believe is a a realignment of the Middle East for the end times. Yes, absolutely. That Arab Spring was a huge turning point in the history of the world, and I knew it when it took place in 2011. And I actually... Um, what kicked it off was Barack Obama in June of '09 going to Cairo, where he had the Muslim Brotherhood as his invited special guests in the front row. Egypt's President Hosni Mubarak was not invited to that Cairo speech, but the Muslim Brotherhood, who our president is yoked at the hip with, um, invited the Muslim Brotherhood, and that's when he told the world, America in June '09, a new course had been set, and the new course was that America was now going to become Muslim-friendly and anti-Israel. Now, he didn't say it in those exact words, but that is what he meant, and that is how history then progressed after June of June 4th, 09. I believe perilous times went into total overdrive in June of 09 when he made that speech in Cairo. And then shortly after that came the Arab Spring, which is really, that was the Arab midwinter, because the spring is a sign of, of new life and everything. But what happened was utter death and destruction and it was orchestrated and it was endorsed by our white house and state department you know dan elections really do have consequences and the election the last two elections not only had consequences for america but for the entire world let me say this this jan see what you think um, number one, when the Arab Spring started, I had never did it before, but we started blowing the trumpets right at the start of the program because I believe that we changed into a new era. But this is what I believe. I believe that, in a sense, I, I can't put Obama's name out there in prophecy anywhere or say he's this person or that person, but what he did to this country made it possible for the end times to come about because before um, Obama, America was always Israel's protector. Yes, always, yes, exactly. Always, right. Always. He has been taken out of the way. America, he allowed to scale back, and so the world, the evil in the world, could come out and make the realignment that it that it needed to make for the end times. I honestly believe that. Without him or a president just like him, the only other alternative was the, the United States would have had to been blown off the map because it had yeah. to get out of the way. And so I believe that happened, and I believe that is that is a big thing. That I don't think that is reversible. I don't think that it's reversible. No, I, I doubt that it's reversible. Hal Lindsey came out in, in, in 2007, and uh, he wasn't trying to be a prophet either, but I think he made a statement that was pretty accurate. He said that Barack Obama would win in 08, and that he would become the forerunner of the Antichrist. And I do believe that is true. That came true. But what he had to he had to um, get into power because the various uh, systems that are collapsing because of him had to collapse. Um, it is part of the end time scenario. Barack Obama is the key player of the end time scenario. I'm not saying he's the Antichrist. I don't believe he right. is. Amen. Because, I, I don't yeah, either. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't believe he is. He's not going to be popular enough. Once he leaves office, I think he's going to be hugely unpopular, and the Antichrist is going to come along and he's going to say, I've got the answer to all these the world's problems, and, and uh, for a short season he may have the answer to some of them. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, Barack Obama was uh, allowed to take power to set the stage for the final, final scenario. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're on the same page, uh, absolutely. Um, you know what else? I, I also believe that that America, America can. Here's one reason why America can continue on as Israel's protector because at some point, you know, Israel has to cry out to God for protection. Yes, uh-huh. As right. long as they're crying out to America for protection, aren't they? Right, right. You know, it isn't putting the God thing in it, is it? Pardon me. I said, as long as Israel is crying out for America for help, then they're not going to be crying out for God. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Totally correct, yes. So, amen. Yeah. Well, I imagine you got that page up. We've got about five minutes left. Let's, sure. let's hear it just a little bit. Well, uh, yeah, some of the topics we're going to cover um, this weekend, and then the program is posted on my website um, under Complete Archives, uh, Radio Archives at OliveTreeViews.org, where Carol and I look at uh, the New Apostolic Reformation, uh, the Third Wave, the Manifest Sons of God, some of the antics going on at the Bethel Church in Redding, California, um, IHOP, Kingdom Now or Dominionism, Theology, Word Faith, Fresh Fire, Todd Bentley, Latter Rain, Prosperity Theology, uh, I wonder if your listeners have ever heard of of, of uh, the new rage that's called grave sucking, uh, and this is no, the belief in the practice. What is? Well, I haven't this heard is of that. the this is the belief uh, uh, that you can pull supposed Holy Spirit powers from dead bodies that are buried. Believe it or not, Bethel Church in Redding, California is teaching this. It's it's taught that when a spirit-empowered individual dies, their mantle or mission dies with them, um, and these people uh, literally throw themselves on a grave and try to get the uh, spirit from these dead bodies that are buried in this particular grave. It's called grave sucking. This is the new rage that's going on in some of the um, uh, unbalanced churches that uh, this film, uh, which we sell, by the way, it's called Wide is the Gate, Volume 3, uh, by Carol Matriciana at my website, yeah, and and uh, we're offering it. It's, it's a five-hour film, two discs, five hours. It's uh, $28 wow. at my film. So these are some of the things that uh, the, uh, these are everyday type of experiences in some of our churches that are going into the hyper, hyper charismatic. I am not anti-Pentecostal. I have been a right. member of two Pentecostal churches, um, and I, I've been a very, very active member of two Pentecostal churches, so I'm not anti-Pentecostal, but I am right. opposed to some of the things that I've just listed because um, they've gone off the deep end. <laughs> uh, when you're sucking from a grave, it's pretty, it's pretty serious. <laughs> Uh, I, I laugh so I don't cry. That, that yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I never. I, I, to the, I don't see how they could. 
I don't know. That that that, um, that amazes me. I guess. Well, it's uh, it's end time apostasy. Re- remember what the Bible says. It says, uh, and I'm looking for the verb. The First uh, Timothy four. Uh, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And that's the difference between um, some churches today that may let's just say not may may have not the most sound theology, but and those that are literally expressing and teaching the doctrines of demons, which is grave-sucking and this, what they're doing at IHOP and, and New Apostolic Reformation and Todd Bentley, these are all the doctrines of demons that people need wow. to be staying away from. Wow. Okay, so I, I want to emphasize this on, for the people. The now the the uh, video or DVD is wide is the gate, and it's five hours. Really, Jan, that's a lot of. I mean, that's a lot of apostasy, yeah. right? Yeah, you know, honestly, Dan, watching it, it's tough because it's five hours of of you're shaken to the core when you see. I mean, it op- It's five hours basically of, of folks writhing in altered states of consciousness, whipped into a frenzy, groaning, moaning, crying, um, and some people call this worship. And I call it the kundalini that's found within Hinduism, but it's, it's, it's prominent in some, again, of our hyper-charismatic churches. And again, I'm not anti-Pentecostal. I've been a member of Pentecostal right, churches, but right. our, hyper, our hyper-charismatic churches that are teaching some of these far-out extremist things. Yeah, amen. When I was very, very young, I, I, oh, I don't know, in my early teens, I went to a Pentecostal church, and and I really, you know, I like, I went off and on for a few years, but then I, you know, I just actually because I fell into the world, I didn't go to church for a long time. But mm-hmm. point is, is I have nothing against Pentecostals or charismatic. You know what I'm saying? I like to feel the spirit, but that's sure. Just, uh, that's just totally obscene. Um, well, we, we've got about a, only about a minute left. Any closing? But first, I want to ask you a question before I say that. Would you, you are such a wonderful talker, and you're so you know so much. Could after maybe I get this white as the gate and look at it, maybe you could come back on and talk to me again. Sure, absolutely. Mm-hmm. We'll do okay, that. that- Absolutely. I'll, I'll get a yeah. hold of you. All right. Now then, um, we got about a minute left for to give a closing remark or tell them where you're at and, you know, tell them when to tune in. Well, all right. If I could just give a plug for my fall conference, uh, which we do every year, October 2nd and 3rd, right outside of Minneapolis, Minnesota. We're going to have Robert Jeffress, uh, Michelle Bachman, Pastor Jack Hibbs, and Israeli Amir Sarfati, and um, it's uh, October 2nd and 3rd, um, no cost, no registration, and um, it's just outside of Minneapolis. We're live streaming it. Uh, visit Olive Tree Views, Views as in Viewpoint, olivetreeviews.org for all the information. Sign up for live streaming if you can't attend. We have about 3,000 who come every year to our conference. And wow. um, I thank you for the time, Dan, Dan. It's been great getting acquainted, and hope we'll do it again. Yeah, amen. It's been a real blessing. I feel blessed by it. And this program will keep blessing the people because, like you, we'll put it in the archives and yep. and uh, people pick it up real quick. But anyway, thanks for being on, Jan. You're such yep. a blessing. And, and I just pray the Father blesses your ministry greatly. And, you and yours thing. as well. Thank you. Amen. 
All right. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye now. Bye. Well, folks, um, that was a, a wonderful interview. Um, really, I'm going to have to check some more into her. I had really had came across her name, and I had been offered for her to be on the program before. I didn't do it, but um, now I'm really glad I did. Make sure you share this program with others and go over to her olivetree.org um, uh, views and check her out olivetreeviews.org, olivetreeviews.org. Check her out. And you probably want to tune in and listen to some of that wide as a gate. Absolutely. Um, folks, people like her, that's just refreshing to hear people like her, that there are other voices out there and they're doing things. But still, the same reflection. While there are voices, the church aren't hearing a lot of the church. We're not saying, just like she said, we're not saying all the body of Messiah, but too much of the body of Messiah is being quiet, and it needs to be risen up. I mean, I know that it's just going to be an end-time remnant. That's it. That's what the Word says, a remnant. I don't think we're turning back. Folks, we are in the time of the end, and this is time to do things that count, not things that add up for things here on the earth, but things that count. That means love, kindness, peace, helping others, doing those things, starting with your family and helping others. And, of course, I've got to put a plug in for a minute. Ministry, pray about helping our ministry. We need to keep getting the word out to you. Like unlike her, she sells lots of DVDs and videos and things. We don't have that capability, and we're not doing that right now. And so we only rely on your donations. So pray about it. We do need your help. But you must remember, folks, that there is only one God. He is your Father. He loves you as your father. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His son is Yeshua, HaMashiach. And he gave his life for your repented sins. He rose after three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And through him, and only through him, is the way to the Father. He loves you. Remember, always, always, always be a blessing to others. If you're not a blessing to others, how can you be saved? How can you represent Messiah? Lord our God, Father, King Universe, asking Yeshua Hamashiach's name, that the Father blesses and keeps you, and His face shines upon you, and is gracious to you, and gives you peace like no one or nothing else can. Until next Thursday, this is Pastor Dan saying goodbye and shalom. You've just heard the Messiah's Branch broadcast featuring Pastor Dan. To contact Dan on the Internet, go to messiahsbranch.org. To write to Dan, send a note to Messiah's Branch, 230 West 4th Street, Florence, Kansas, 66851. Tune in next time for Messiah's Branch.
online by going to wichitahomeless.com or simply call 316-619-4886. Don't make the aspirin mistake. Aspirin was discovered by mistake during World War II and suppresses your immune system and prevents blood clotting. Don't expose your body to risk when you can use a natural inflammation and pain reliever called Extra Strength Pain Relief by Apothecary Herbs. Discover the power this formula has with Salicin to enter the system in 60 seconds to work hard and relieve pain for 12 hours. Whether it's arthritis, sports injury, or flu, you can relieve aches, pain, and swelling with our Extra Strength Pain Relief Formula. Call Apothecary Herbs now, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3w.thepowerherbs.com. Job stress, financial obligations, or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out? When life is too much to handle, use Apothecary Herbs Emotional Stress Formula. Feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope. Complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee. You've waited long enough. Call Apothecary Herbs now. Toll free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3w.thepowerherbs.com. If you have a heart condition and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kit. Five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom
Talk Live. I'm your resident herbalist, Wendy Wilson. Hope you had a great day. Thanks for joining us here on Herb Talk Live, where we like to empower you. So we're going to empower you with some really great information this hour. Thanks for joining us on American Voice Radio. We are going to be talking about um, the drought a little bit and the water problem that is facing not only the West Coast, but other areas of the country. And also we're going to be talking about uh, signs that you may have a health problem based on what your urine looks like, okay? And we may get time to talk about some of the um, drugs on the market that people take, um, you know, even over-the-counter stuff uh, that can damage their bones and their liver. So we're going to look at some of that and some al- alternatives to those things. And we we have a quack report. We do. But before we get to all that great stuff, big salute and semper fighter, righteous men and women in uniform, lifting them up in prayer, lifting all the righteous men and women all around the world up in prayer. That's you. That's me. And, uh, you know, and I, I, I spend some time in the Bible. You know, I just sleep better if I read my Bible before I go to sleep. And I was reading Psalms 128. Just last night, and it said, Blessed is everyone that fears the Lord and walks in his ways. Just, wow, just wrap your brain around that one, right? So you'll be blessed. For you shall eat of the labor of your hands. Happy you will be, and it shall be well with thee. That's right. And one of my other favorite things that I like to do each and every day when I'm in prayer as I go over to Chronicles, and right smack in the middle of Chronicles is this prayer uh, that, you know, just Jabez, he, he just, you know, right in the smack of all this lineage. Here's this prayer by Jabez. He said to the Lord, the God of Israel, Oh, that thou wouldest bless me indeed and enlarge my coast, and that thy hand might be with me, that it would keepest me from evil, that it may not grieve me. Oh, boy, do we need to pray that every day because there's a whole lot of evil out there. So um, seek the Lord's face, mind the time, because it grows short. You'll never, ever regret spending time in the prayer and speaking with the Lord. And without further ado, let's do the quack report. All righty, what do we got in the quacker? Quacker's a little brief tonight. Not going to be as long as usual, but two good things in here. Um, some new research and... Um, it was uh, into some cognitive neuroscience area. They say that um, they think some short micro breaks, uh, if you spend some time out in, um, you know, in, in nature, you know, in, in the grass, looking at the green trees, it's, they say it rejuvenates your brain. It boosts your levels of attention. And they also say that school kids that have more greenery around them um, have better cognitive tests. So they wanted to test this. So um, they wanted to see what the benefits nature uh, had on your brain, and they did an experiment. They wanted to capture the neural signature, observe it through brain scans. So the folks at Sanford um, and Gregory Bateman and his colleagues and some other uh, people around the United States and in Sweden, they did this study, and it was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, and they, what they did is they took 38 people who lived in urban areas who didn't have any history of depression or mental disorder. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.